Hello, everyone, and welcome to uh, Breakout A here on day two of the ACB Legislative Seminar. I am your panel moderator, Clark Rockfall, ACB's Director of Advocacy and Governmental Affairs. And I'm excited for this panel. Uh, it's, it's a topic in an idea that has come up just repeatedly in all, all aspects of the advocacy work that we do at ACB, especially when dealing with communications, um, technology, and, and it doesn't seem to matter what arena it's in, you know, whether it's the, the workplace, education, uh, entertainment, or uh, you know, using technology to perform daily tasks. So in this panel is uh, titled The Intersection of Accessibility, Security, Privacy, and Safety. So, because how often do we all hear that you know, it would be great to make this accessible? Or we'd love to have access for people with disabilities, but we're, we're worried about your safety. You know, on our last panel, someone asked a question that they went to a, a Planet Fitness gym and they were told that as a person with a disability, you must work with a personal trainer because it's, it's not safe for you to be here otherwise. Or how often do we hear, and it's certainly one of our uh, panelists will touch on this, um, it would be great if people with disabilities could vote using their own assistive technology. But how can we ensure that that vote is, is secure and that that vote counts? So to join me for this conversation today, I'm very pleased to have three partners of the American Council of the Blind. Many of uh, their organizations and maybe even their names will be familiar uh, to our audience. But I'd like to welcome them into the conversation. First, we have Troy Attilio, and Troy is the CEO of IRA, uh, one of everyone's favorite uh, virtual assistance services. So, Troy, welcome to the ACB Legislative Seminar, and welcome back, I should say, because you were on a panel with us about broadband uh, adoption and what broadband technology can enable at last year's legislative seminar. Hey Clark, hey everyone in the in the call here today. It's uh, it's great to be here. I'm I'm actually at CSUN, so I'm really getting immersed in everything accessibility. But really happy to talk on this subject today, and I'm looking forward to to sharing more of my thoughts. Yeah. Great, thank you so much, Troy, and, and enjoy uh, the CSUN Assistive Technology Conference. Uh, our next panelist and presenter is Brian Finney. And Brian Finney is the CEO of Democracy Live. Brian, welcome to the conversation here today. Well, Clark, thank you for inviting me. And it's a great honor to be a part of, part of this, uh, this uh, panel today. Thank you. Great. And our final panelist is Monica Desai. And Monica is the Vice President of Connectivity and Policy at Meta. Meta, formerly known as Facebook. Monica, how are you doing today? I'm doing so well. Thank you. Thank you so much to you and to Eric and to ACB for this opportunity. I'm really looking forward to the discussion. Thank you. That's great. Thank you, Monica. Um, so before we get started here, I'd just like to turn it to our each of our panelists to share a little bit about their, their role, their organization, and why they're interested in joining this panel here today. 
Uh, and Monica, if you don't mind, I know I named you last, but would you like to go first? Oh, sure. So um, I'm the head of the Global Connectivity and Mobile Access Policy team at Meta, and our team covers issues involving accessibility policy in addition to online messaging, online video, infrastructure, net neutrality, and the use of radio spectrum. Before I joined Meta, I spent over a decade in senior positions at the Federal Communications Commission, um, including as chief of the Consumer and Governmental Affairs Bureau, which develops all the policies and rules in connection with accessibility issues. And it was during that time that I first met Eric and became acquainted with the fantastic work that ACB does. And I've been so glad um, to um, continue to remain involved with partnering with ACB. So I feel really lucky for that. Um, in addition, I also served at the FCC as the chief of the Media Bureau, which has oversight over broadcasters and cable companies and overseas captioning policies. And then I was also um, a partner at a law firm, Squire Patton Boggs, where my part practice included counseling clients on accessibility. So this is all just background to say that accessibility has been a very important part of my career and, and which is why I really enjoy working at Meta where I can continue to help work on these issues. And I feel like I'm at a company that really does consistently work to try to improve accessibility of our, of our products and as well as inclusion in our workplace. Um, I'm happy to touch on our approach to accessibility if that would be helpful. Please do. Um, sure. So and as, as you may be aware, our mission is to give people the power to build community and bring the world closer together by building inclusive products that serve everyone. And that includes, of course, people with disabilities. So making our products accessible to, um, is critical to and take that commitment very seriously, and we continue to build a variety of tools to try to enhance access to our products and services, including innovations like automatic alt text and more recently, accessibilities like Raise View and our Quest VR headset. We have a dedicated centralized accessibility team to define and develop and distribute and distribute accessibility training, best practices, tools, techniques. Um, technologies and metrics um, and user accessibility requirements to advance that type of work throughout the company. And at the same time, Excel, um, accessibility is incorporated as a horizontal function across the company. And this means that it's, um, it, that it's embedded into the various departments that touch and contribute to the product lifecycle, including in the design phase, research phase, engineering, as well as in policy and legal, which results in an important cross-functional effort to promote accessibility in our products. Um, so with, um, with that um, background, I, um, I look forward to the discussion on the importance of um, data and machine learning and the importance of machine learning to AI and how these have all been influential to some of the um, most important recent advancements in accessibility at Meta. But first, I'll turn it over to the other um, speakers uh, to uh, continue background and intro, and I'm excited to talk about these issues further. Thanks. Thank you, Monica. And Brian, will you please share a little bit about your background, the work you do, and why you were interested to join this conversation today? Absolutely, Clark. And again, thank you very much for the invitation to be here on this important panel, legislative panel, which is very relevant to uh, the conversation with, with uh, elections and, and voting, which is what we're representing here at Democracy Live today. 
Um, I'm the founder and president of Democracy Live. We are the largest provider of accessible remote balloting voting in the country. Uh, we happen to support uh, voters and counties uh, all around the country. I think we're in 26 states, supporting over 2,500 jurisdictions uh, for you know the close to 20% of voters uh, in the in the electorate who um, maybe have some level of disability. They they can't hold a, a paper ballot. Maybe they can't see the ballot. Um, they can't mark a ballot independently and privately from home. Um, as many of us have perhaps seen the most recent report from Rutgers University talking about how the voters with disabilities happen to be the largest minority population of voters in the country. And, and so the goal of Democracy Live is to extend the franchise of, of voting privately and independently to all voters, regardless of disabilities. Uh, we have seen that the uh, largest population of voters um, uh, in, in the country are, are now voting at home, uh, be it pandemics or, or convenience or uh, the need for, for uh, you know, privacy. Um, we are seeing more and more people voting at home. Historically, though, if you're a voter with disabilities and you wanted to vote privately and, and independently, you'd have to go down to a polling place, to a machine, while the rest of your neighbors are able to vote at home securely and privately and independently. So the intent and the goal of, of Democracy Live is to continue working in collaboration and, and developing products and technologies to make sure that the foundation of our democracy, uh, the engine of our democracy, which is voting, is extended to all voters, uh, regardless of, of the ability to see or mark or hold a, a, a ballot. And, and that's our goal. That's our intent. We want to continue collaborating, but especially this type of a panel. As we talked about um, last week in a little pre-meeting that we had, you know, there's going to be some homework for all of us, you know, or for all of the people on, on the call here today. And that is, this is a legislative panel. Uh, I represent Democracy Live, but small D democracy actually can work. And that means that for all of you at the end of this, if you feel so mobilized and galvanized, you'll go out and meet with your state representatives to make sure that laws and legislation is passed to ensure that you have the right to vote, just like your neighbors, at home, privately, independently, and conveniently and securely. So that will be the intent is to make sure that we all kind of get out there and meet with our representatives and, and try to get some legislation passed in those states that don't already offer it. So I think that's my introductory, introductory remarks and I'll turn it over to Troy. Thanks, Clark. Thank you, Brian and, and Troy, same questions for you. Hey, great. Um, let's see. So Ira is now six years old. Our mission is to make the world more accessible. For those of you who have used Ira, you know that it's a service that connects um, individuals who, who may be blind, low vision, or otherwise to a remote professional agent. And um, I was, uh, we'd met before and I was telling Clark, we, we've taken over 3 million calls. And when you think about the broad use of IRA from the morning, from the morning to tonight, you know, we, we happen to be open 24 seven. We're providing service around the globe. But um, what IRA gives me as the CEO is a unique perspective on all the challenges that individuals face and also the joys that they, you know, um, they find in using IRA. And I also get, get to see where it conflicts with privacy, with security, um, and, and sometimes even safety. And, and it's, and it's in, in an interesting service because it is this one to one connection and, and it is a video. It's not, you're not looking at, um, data through click streams or trying to interpret things. We don't have to call our customers to ask. Them how things went. So we have that direct lens. And I'm always wondering how to use our data for good. But one place is to raise awareness where that conflict occurs. And maybe it doesn't need to. 
I'd also add that as someone who grew up in Silicon Valley and I'm a technologist, I know that it's it's technology naturally disrupts everything like good technology will disrupt things because it's literally trying to change a pattern. And in doing so, it often rubs up against existing policies and existing mindsets. And so as a leader of IRA, and then I'm loving being on this panel, it's part of our job to communicate where those conflicts are so that the actual people who benefit and can really advocate for a service like IRA can have a better conversation, like you were saying, Brian, with those who can influence policy, who can influence mindset. And so I'm here today to share some of those um, areas where there is conflict and why I think that often it's not conflict that needs to remain, but something that needs to be talked about and and, um, advocated for. Thanks, Troy. And Troy, I'd like like to just stick with you and Ira for a moment, as many of our ACB members are uh, Ira users, explorers, whether they have subscriptions Mm -hmm. uh, or they just use it uh, one-off or free location-based offerings, Uh, which leads me to my question that Ira is a remote virtual uh, video assistance service that individuals can use with their own personal device. But in in doing so, you know, some of these offers are location-based. So you have access to uh, location information about users, correct? Correct. And uh, certainly that can be sensitive information and also some of the the use cases of IRA. Uh, Say, for example, our first panel today was dealing with currently inaccessible at-home COVID testing. Mm-hmm. So you potentially have access to healthcare information mm-hmm. about individuals, right? It's so, a, yeah, love to chat about that. Um, you know, first off, uh, you know, I always just have to say this because it's, it is so critical. Like the, the strongest value of IRA is the trust that the individual has with the service, right? And so we, we take security, we take privacy so seriously. I know every company does, but Ultimately, IRA doesn't exist if there's not trust between the user and IRA, as well as the business who's you know choosing to implement IRA, like a like a Starbucks, Bank America, or all the airports. And so, how we handle our data is critical. It's why we have a, a very transparent privacy policy statement, um, and it's why we also do our best to put the control in with the customer. You were mentioning location data. We, you can opt out of location data. You can opt out of screen uh, of recording. So we try and give as much control to the user. Um, but there are situations where if we don't know your location, for example, it's harder to, you know, navigate or provide service, but we try and give that, um, uh, control to the consumer. And separately, we don't share that data with the, um, with the businesses. But ultimately, when you think about, um, for IRA to succeed or any service like IRA to succeed, we need to move beyond individual um, individuals paying for the service. And so that's where we look for public and private sponsorship. And it's in those conversations that I run into very early discussions about, you know, the, the trade-offs because sometimes um, corporations want more data and we have to explain why that data really is owned by the individual and why we're not going to share it and explain how that, you know, facilitates the ecosystem. And in other cases, you know, there's situations like in airports where we've had conversations with the TSA who have said that we need to be the ones to enforce that no, no recording or no videotaking is taking place during TSA. And we point out that 
That's not a requirement that you put on Apple or Google, for example, like you don't require that their phone automatically shuts off in TSA security checks. Um, how is that different for someone who wants to use a service like Ira? Put that responsibility on the individual, not on the service. Don't block the service just because it's being used for someone who has, you know, vision loss. And so it's in those conversations that um, we always try and point people to other use cases that are similar that aren't constrained and maybe put the the onus on the individual. So that's an example of, of security and accessibility coming in conflict and how we have worked around it by pointing out where the controls can lie. Thanks, Troy. And Brian, uh, two things that Troy touched on here is one, building, building trust in technology, a platform and a service, um, but also potentially the, the trade-offs of you know, having access to data or information. And I'm sure you're no stranger to both of those concepts in the work that you and Democracy Live do to increase the accessibility of remote voting. No, there's no question about that, Clark. Uh, this is a very emotional topic for, for tens of millions of voters uh, around the country. Unfortunately, we saw that on January 6th, right, 2021, where you have enough voters that, that uh, you know, don't believe a certain, you know, um, that the election was securely um, uh, implemented. It, you know, people rose up and stormed the Capitol. This is a very volatile and polarizing conversation, and we're fully aware of that. I personally know uh, too many elections officials who's had death threats um, on on their lives for conducting what historically would be the most secure election of all time. So this is a very, very um, important and, 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 and uh, kind of polarizing conversation. So security has to start first and foremost with the trust of, of voters. You know, they're not going to trust our democracy, and they're not going to trust the the people representing us if, if they weren't uh, securely and fairly elected. So that's, again, the, the premise of where we started Democracy Live. Um, we also believe that there is maybe this, this, this false debate out there between the tension between accessibility and security. Um, in our opinion, it's accessibility that drives security. It's, it's the accessibility requirements and needs, either because of litigation or legislation, right? That is driving equal access to voting. And so there is a need out there. And so for companies like Democracy Live, we follow the requirement for accessibility to ensure that you have the security. And I will say that as the, the, the more leading providers in, in the country for this, we perhaps would not be, we would not be advancing the level of security that we've had to over the last numbers of years if it wasn't for accessibility, if it wasn't for the need to have an accessible voting option for so many millions of voters. Um, so again, I strongly believe that it's not a, a tension between the two. I think it is not just complementary, but accessibility is driving security at the end of the day. So with that, you know, we, we try to work very, uh, we work in collaboration with all different levels of government, right? So the, the state levels, the federal level, the local levels of government for us to make sure that we have the trust, that we have the security, uh, you know, we have independent security re reviews done from folks like Homeland Security and the cybersecurity information structure. We have over 100 cybersecurity researchers that review it. And most of the states that work with us have their own independent security labs. So at the end of the day, it's like, don't don't look at Democracy Live necessarily. Look at these other independent agencies and, and, and uh, security labs have done 
the security because I'm going to be biased, right? Uh, at the end of the day. So look at the independent security. Look at our partners. We happen to partner closely with Amazon Web Services, AWS. Uh, they are just uh, selected by the National Security Agency, right, to store some of the nation's most critical and classified documents. Um, and, and in this case, for our, from our um, application, that critical document happens to be a ballot. So again, working in collaboration with the different security agencies, the governments, uh, partners like Amazon, we hope to build the trust and working collaboration with the users, which are voters with disabilities. We can all come together and work collectively to continue building that trust. That's so important and foundational to our democracy. Thank you, Brian. And Monica, I'd, I'd like to ask you to either uh, respond or build off of what Brian has just said. And I guess I'll frame it this way. Uh, Brian says that accessibility drives security. Do you think or does Meta believe that there is an inherent conflict between accessibility, privacy, security or safety? You know, I, I think that's a great question. I think it's also important um, just more foundationally for people to understand the importance of data to machine learning, the importance of machine learning to AI, and how AI has been influential to some of the most important recent accessibility advances, at least at Meta, and I think at another uh, places as well. So, you know, I'll give you a little bit of context and the importance of that work first, and then I'll, I'll respond to your question if that's okay. Yes, please. And uh, AI being artificial intelligence? Yes. Sorry. Yes. Exactly. Thank you. So in 2016, Meta invented the first version of automatic um, photo description technology called automatic alt text. And this technology uses computer vision and AI to generate a description of photos that enable people using screen readers to hear a list of items that photos may contain. Um, last year, we introduced the most recent generation, the latest generation of a automatic alt text, which can now recognize over 1,200 concepts, objects, and places, which is 10 times more than the original version. And now it also provides additional context about a photo, such as the count of recognized objects, positional information, and a comparison of the relative prominence of objects in an image, and it does this on demand. And these advances were only made possible because we were able to train an AI model by sampling billions of public public Facebook and Instagram images and translated hashtags from 15 different countries across five continents describing them. So we developed a new approach that gave us the ability to more readily repurpose machine learning models as the starting point for training on new tasks, which is also known as transfer learning. And this enabled us to create models that could identify popular concepts like popular landmarks, food types, and, um, and other types of objects that were not possible in the past. Um, AI is also behind automatic speech recognition called ASR, which is responsible for the rapid expansion and availability of online closed captioning. Several, year, several years ago, uh, Meta enabled users to manually add captions for video to customize the way those captions display to the user. We recognize that not everyone takes the time to add captions, um, but our goal is for every video to have them. So we committed to making large investments in AI and leveraging it to enable auto-generated captioning of video in more than 17 languages globally at no additional cost to content creators. Auto-generated um, captioning makes it easy to add um, uh, captions at a press of the, of a, of the button. Um, 
And we're able to also uh, use AI-powered ASR to enable speech-controlled devices like the recent Stories glasses developed with Ray-Ban that enable people to capture photos without having to hold a camera or a smartphone or hold it steady or even to press a button. They only need to have only need to speak and ask to take a photo. And these represent just a few recent and, and, and we think pretty significant breakthroughs for accessibility. Um, but many people don't yet understand or recognize that these types of advances are only um, possible through machine learning and AI. And moving forward, many of the most exciting and previously impossible technology and advancements will increasingly rely on AI and machine learning powered by data. And it's important that people recognize how critical data is to these desirable advances in accessibility and important to let people know we hear their concerns and understand how, um, how important it is that people have agency over how and when their data is collected and transparency about how it's used. So you ask about whether there's an inherent conflict um, among accessibility, privacy, security, you know, safety, I think, too. And I think um, another way to think about this issue is whether there's a necessary tension among these dimensions, um, not necessarily a conflict, uh, but I think all of those, accessibility, privacy, security, and safety are fundamental principles in the digital ecosystem, and innovation in the space undoubtedly requires a better balance among them. I mean, we, uh, you know, we all have expectations of privacy in our communications and end-to-end -end encryption like we're building in Facebook Messenger delivers this. But unless on-device AI is able to process what, it's, what is said, it won't be possible to also apply real-time speech recognition to enable too far on privacy, we limit accessibility. So there's got to be a, a better way of informing people of these choices and offering them more agency and more granularity of choices so that they make the, right, uh, make the appropriate level of choice for themselves, but the level of privacy and accessibility that they're you know, that makes sense for them. And, you know, similarly, while many people are rightfully concerned with ensuring online safety and security, keeping people safe on the internet inherently relies on monitoring and, and assessing activity on a given, uh, also called metadata, on a given network or endpoint in order to identify and act on malicious behavior. Um, and another example, when a blind person must rely on a sighted person for help, um, for example, in banking or medical records, you know, I mean, and or voting, and the and the the blind person is naturally vulnerable to the person assisting them, but they have the right to make that that choice. Or I think that we should recognize that there's got to be you know balances out there, and I think you know we need to work together to find the right equilibrium and provide more transparency and a better recognition about you know, the various factors, including accessibility, that must be considered when especially, you know, policymakers, regulators are making these choices. Uh, thank you, Monica. And I guess w one thought and follow-up in this regard uh, is certainly our members who are deafblind and our friends and colleagues in the deaf and hard of hearing community uh, use uh, automatic speech recognition. And here for this conference, we're providing you know, live captioning and, and CART services because al although 
automatic speech recognition has has come a long way. It's you know it's improving. It's still not not perfect, right? And the same with image recognition. There, there's been a just tremendous improvement in image recognition, not only of what is in images, but who is in images as well. Whether that's through uh, assistive technologies that utilize uh, artificial intelligence to to recognize and and match. Uh, photos and recognize individuals, but on, you know, in social media as well, because what are the, some of the additional, uh, some of the additional considerations toward, toward privacy and, you know, certainly providing that additional accessible information when identifying um, who is in an image? Oh, sure. So, you know, um, know, when, when a person, tags themselves, for example, in a, in a photo, um, I, I, I believe our system is able to read that. I think, you know, recently there were recent changes that, um, where the privacy settings now no longer automatically, um, automatically recognize a person if they're not self-tagged or somebody doesn't tag them in a photo. And I think, you know, that, you know, that's a trade-off that was made, um, and I, you know, and those are, I mean, that's that's one example where there there was a trade off between um, privacy and uh, and and I think and accessibility. And so I think that um, is an example of where people might not have understood or fully appreciated, um, you know, externally, like what what that means when you make that choice of whether to tag someone or tag yourself. And so I think. You know, more transparency surrounding that would be helpful. Um, is, mm-hmm. is, is I mean, I think that that's what you were getting at. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. And, and Troy, it, with Ira, have you faced similar circumstances where uh, potentially, and I, I think you hinted about this a little bit earlier, but where potentially access to more data or use of more technology could either improve or augment the accessibility sure. of yeah. the IRA service? I mean, what Monica describes is not unlike IRA. So with these millions of sessions, we are both looking to improve our service by reviewing the, the tape, if you will, or the recording afterwards, or feeding that to our AI to improve um, our backend systems that automatically detect sessions when they're not performing as expected or developing our own AI. And it's often in that loop of collecting data and and producing an outcome that isn't necessary. It's hard to describe the benefit and it's hard sometimes to describe how privacy is maintained. And that's where I think um, ultimately awareness. And I think this group and, and people who would listen to this group need to listen to with a more keen ear about what that loop looks like, who it benefits and why privacy is um, maintained because the reaction for many organizations is simply to turn that off. Like, I don't want things recorded. I don't understand all this. I just don't want it to be recorded without recognizing the downside of limiting that data capture. Right. And so um, a good example is um, when we deployed early in some um, uh, different um, transportation systems, there was public concern about the idea that people would be 
running around, if you will, with cameras taking video of, of bystanders and what rights do they have to not be recorded, which is a valid concern, right? That's a totally, you know, reasonable, uh, people have expectation of privacy. There's different laws that apply in public spaces, but nonetheless, that becomes a point of resistance. And so uh, sometimes we have to compromise and reduce the quality of our service by not capturing all the data to appease or otherwise, um, you know, make progress on on deploying IRA, which still can work without that data capture. But I would encourage everyone to, you know, learn about some of these um, concepts like Monica was talking about, and for us to collectively bring more awareness of what the benefits are and what the trade-offs are so that we can have a more informed discussion. I liken it to, I always laugh when ATMs came out, my dad was he was sure that they were insecure and he was sure that bad things were going to happen. But over time, no one has, you know, like ATMs are secure and, and we can trust them. And, and that, that often takes time. But in part, I think it's also because we become more comfortable with the underlying technology. And so both those things need to happen. Like we need deeper understanding of what these processes look like. And we need to also understand what trade-offs we're making and not just jump to the first conclusion, which is to say, no data, no capture, right? And that that would be the, um, you know, my 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 ask to this audience, right? To to listen with a closer ear and to have more of these sessions that we're having today with uh, with Meta, you know, with with democracy. Like, I think this is a very powerful group, and there's more of us out there, right? There's more of us trying to pioneer in the space. And when you pioneer again, you're bringing new disruptive patterns that humans have to get comfortable with, and that takes time and, and understanding. Thanks, Troy. And I'm starting to definitely hear and notice some some themes from each of you. Uh, one, having a, a better understanding of the technology used, uh, a greater awareness of its purpose, and a greater greater trust in the the technologies and the systems. Uh, Troy, are there any other uh, ways that you think that we can navigate these these dueling priorities? Um, to still have accessibility, but ensure that there's uh, privacy, security uh, for for our members in the broader community? Um, I think I hit on it. I think the other one, it's always a little tricky, uh, at least from an IRA perspective. You know, we always hope and wish that the consumer would advocate for not just IRA, right? that's obviously self-serving, mm-hmm. but, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a voice out there that can, once heard, it's stronger than an, if a single entity like a Democracy Now or, or, or Meta or IRA um, uh, encourages. So it's it's sometimes just you know whether it's taking to Twitter or taking to your, your your senators or congressmen, like that voice matters. I can tell you when we are working with either private or public entities, um, those things matter, and maybe they shouldn't as much, but but they do. Meaning that the the voice because ultimately. You know, folks are trying to make a decision on changing something and, and to change something, there has to be mm, some comfort in it. So um, it, it's probably something this group is used to hearing, but I can tell you it makes a difference, at least from an IRA perspective, when we're working with an organization, if there is existing chatter on social or articles or respected forums like ACB that advocate um, more specifically. That's great. Thanks, Troy. And you're, you're getting ahead of me on my questions here. You're, Uh-oh. you're, you're answering them in advance. No worries. It's good. Uh, but Brian, I'll, I'll ask you to uh, 
to add your two cents here, you know, one of the things that you mentioned that I think that Troy was getting to kind of how we can navigate, but also best practices for industries. Brian, you mentioned the, the independent uh, verification in testing that Democracy Live does to, to build trust in their system. Do you have any other recommendations for how we can navigate these in priorities to still you know, ensure at least equal footing for accessibility? Right. Yeah, Clark, I think one of the things I want to touch on a little bit is this issue of privacy. And again, I'll, I'll go back to how um, I believe that, that, um, that the need for privacy can drive the technology. Um, and if you think back, for those of you that are uh, older like myself, we remember the Gore-Bush election back in 2000, right? And if you think back then, uh, that election was very close. But also, we didn't have true independent and private access to the ballot back in 2000, right? After that election, something called the Help America Vote Act was passed. So voters could come to a polling place and vote um, independently on a, on a machine, right? What's happened subsequently is that we've gone more and more to vote by mail, and we've gone more and more back to paper-based voting in the polling places, right? Which is perfectly fine for those of us that can, you know, mark the ballot um, independently. But the privacy debate, and this is where the technology, again, can enhance privacy. Again, it doesn't have to be this, this tension between the two. Is it private or, 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 or not, the more that we do uh, technology. And if you think about today, if you vote um, at a polling place, that's great, but not everybody can get to a polling place and vote on those machines. And in many of those, um, those polling places, there are, um, it's a separate looking ballot than everybody else, right? And so if you only have a handful of voters that are voting in a polling place and the ballot looks differently than everybody else, it's not a uniform ballot. That, that is a, you're sacrificing privacy there. And then if you think about, and it's been a great step over the last number of years in, in a, a growing number of states allow for voters to vote at home, but they require a printer, right? Well, many voters don't have a printer to be able to print out the ballot. So what ends up happening is you either can't really vote, even though it's allowed to get your ballot and mark it, but then you print it out. But if you're blind, maybe you don't have a printer. Even if you did, you're mailing it back into the elections office and that paper ballot at home is going to look different than everybody else's ballot. So again, you're foregoing privacy in the something as critical as voting. And so with technology and, and the evolution of technology, you can use something. In our case, we happen to use a, a cloud environment, right? The portal and a voter can access the ballot, listen to the ballot, navigate through their, through the balloting experience, but then electronically submit it at which point the ballot gets printed out at the elections office on the exact same ballot that everybody else has, right? So you're, in fact, enhancing privacy with technology. You're increasing uniformity with technology. So at least the theme that I'm hoping that you're, hear, you're hearing is that, you know, you don't have to sacrifice uh, accessibility for security or security for accessibility. And you certainly don't have to sacrifice privacy if you want to have technology. They both are, are drivers, right? You can get more privacy with technology, more security with accessibility. 
That's great. Thank you, Brian. Uh, Monica, any thoughts on this topic on how we can navigate these priorities or are there any best practices that exist? Oh, sure. I mean, I think both Troy and Brian make great points. And, I, you know, I think it's critical, and you've heard this theme before, too, is that we educate external stakeholders about the trade-offs um, among, you know, potential trade-offs among accessibility, privacy, security, and safety, so that everyone is better equipped and more informed as they review these issues, whatever issue they're working on, acknowledge and examine whether there are consequences that they might not have thought about that would flow from proposed policies or regulations, including specifically negative impacts, um, potentially, for people who have different disabilities. Um, And I think there should be a process in place to make the review of dueling priorities, um, if if we call it that, a part of any review of any new privacy, security, and safety policy, um, and to include accessibility in that. And this will help ensure that we're activating, actively deciding and making choices intentionally. And when I say we, I mean the broader we of stakeholders, all stakeholders, um, including policymakers, regulators, legislators. And we should also, I think, explore opportunities to foster discussions um, among different stakeholder communities that sometimes operate in silos. Um, So foster discussions among external stakeholders that are otherwise mainly focused on accessibility, otherwise mainly focused on privacy or security or safety, and keep having these very specific, um, these very similar so discussions that are similar to this very one that ACB is um, is hosting right now, because when they happen, when these discussions happen in silos, of course it's going to sound like, hey, super um, super privacy is a great idea, super security is a great idea, super you know safety is a great idea without understanding what some of the unintended consequences might be. So fostering that type of cross-community dialogue can help promote, I think, greater awareness and consideration uh, of the potential trade-offs and a recognition of potentially um, unintended consequences and maybe help, um, help stop some of those unintended consequences or find a way to prevent them. Monica, I think you just outlined a panel for next year. So thank you in advance. Uh, And I'm going to stick with you, Monica. So yesterday we heard from two of our presenters from the United States Access Board and National Council on Disability a little bit about the Biden administration's executive order for diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility within the federal workforce. Uh, So people with disabilities are defined in this executive order as part of underserved or marginalized communities. There's a definition for uh, accessibility and accessible technology with specific reference to the workplace. Uh, But just in general, you you work in policy and, and have an extensive background in policy. Are you beginning to hear more about Uh, disability and inclusion and accessibility uh, when it comes to technology in policy discussions and debates? I am. And I think it's, um, you know, thanks to the work of organizations like ACB that that's happening. Having worked in policy within the government um, for 11 years and having 
you know, helped help develop policies. I think it is fair to say that, you know, policymakers that, that aren't focused on accessibility or if it's not part of their remit aren't always in the habit of considering the full implications of their decisions on accessibility. Um, and so that can potentially lead to policies or, or regulations that may not account for the specific needs of people with disabilities. And I think that's why it's critical that we all continue to raise awareness of um, issues surrounding accessibility and we all continue to explore ways to make sure policymakers and stakeholders think about unintended consequences. Um, and, and I think that's especially important when reviewing the implications um, for regulatory proposals. Yeah, very important, especially when we have the opportunity to file comments and weigh in uh, to do so. And another opportunity for education and to raise our voice, similar to the opportunity that our audience will have now. So I'd like to turn it over to our Zoom host so that we can uh, recognize folks in the audience to see if we can get a few questions here before I return to our panelists for final thoughts. Great. The first person with a question is David Kingsbury. David, you may unmute. Yes. Uh, can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Okay. Thank you for a great session. Um, uh, I'm David Kingsbury from the Bay State Council of the Blind in Massachusetts. A couple of things quickly. First, um, I really want to thank Brian and Democracy Live for the work they've already done in Massachusetts during last year's uh, sort of off-year election uh, in terms of getting a number of towns up and going with the ballot. And this year hopefully working together to maybe get a statewide uh, law passed to make uh, the accessible ballots statewide. Um, and it's been really successful. People really appreciate it. And we hope that it can be made statewide. And Democracy Live has also offered to uh, uh, be a sponsor of our upcoming convention. So again, thank you so much for that. Uh, I have a question for um, Troy. And it's about, uh, you know, the different companies that you've signed agreements with, such as um, Bank of America, McDonald's, and so on. And you, you touched on this a little bit yourself, I think, but just to explore a little more. How did those agreements come uh, into fruition in terms of sort of who started the advocacy for it? Was your staff sort of sitting around and thinking, mm -hmm. you know, what are our opportunities or are blind people coming to you or are blind people coming to the companies who then came to you? How, how, how did, how has that come to um, pass? Well, well, certainly changed. And thanks for the question, David. Um, yeah, it certainly changed over the last three years. We launched, we call it IRA access three and a half years ago with the uh, Tennessee airport and that situation we just ha happened to have someone who um we reached out to we had a personal connection and pitched the idea wouldn't it be great to provide the service for your visitors um over the years as we got more airports that word spread and we started getting more inbound so in the case of um customer experience like a like a starbucks or you know the target.com website um or target itself some of those are early adopters that we had to, you know, uh, spend a lot of time to get to the right decision maker, which takes time. But I can also tell you a good third of our access deals have been driven internally by someone who's a fan of IRA or a champion of IRA who said, hey, wouldn't it be great if um, I didn't have to pay for IRA myself in the workplace? 
wouldn't it be great if we could provide IRA to our customers? And so that's an increasing lever. And when we have a champion inside, um, that that's raising awareness of a solution that many don't know about. It's very expensive to market a solution. Um, it takes a lot of money, a lot of time. And so we still depend quite a bit on word of mouth. Um, but even in the employer network, as we get, you know, the Amazons, the Googles and, and more, we'll be announcing more that word of mouth spreads. And, and I think in the employment case in particular, that is largely driven by two factors. One is the growing momentum we're seeing. And frankly, it's the increase in advocacy internally. And I think we all know that, uh, at least I've talked to enough people who are blind or vision impaired and they will tell me I'm a, I'm concerned about advocating for an accommodation. I don't want to add expense or burden. I love my job. I can do it. I would like to be more productive, but they're concerned by bringing up um, a need that that somehow is going to have a negative impact. And I think the, um, you know, the executive order, I think will help. And as more companies embrace um, accommodations like IRA, I think, it's a, it's a, it's, it's going to increase momentum. So I hope I answered that. It's a, it's a combination of, of everything. Um, it takes us a lot of effort, but it benefits when we have internal advocates as well. Thank you so much for that question, David, and, and that response, Troy. Um, Chanel, can we get another audience question? We can. Currently, we do not have any raised hands. Just a quick review. If you want to ask a question, Alt-Y on your PC, Option-Y on your Mac, the Raise My Hand button in the middle of your screen, your smartphone screen, or Star 9 on the phone. I I find it hard to believe that we covered this topic so (laughs) thoroughly. But while we're waiting for folks to oh, raise there we their go. hand, okay. Lynn, Lynn, you may unmute. Lynn Carell. Hi, um, Brian. I've I've heard you many times. I live in Washington now. I've lived in six states. I live in Washington now, and I'm so glad Democracy Live is in Washington. And I've also worked with Ira a little bit, um, and um, I, I think both services are very, uh, very tangential to. Um, blind people to be more independent and also private. Um, One of the things that I think, and of course Alaska was the first state to pass a voting privacy law in 2002 before the HAVA was passed uh, in March 8th of 2002. So, um, you know, I think all these things are so important in Facebook too, which I use a lot. And sometimes I find the accessibility a little bit wanting. And yes, Messenger is private, but some of the other things I think people are worried about worry, worried about is is just equality of um, the the um, messages that are being displayed, you know, in terms of the algorithms and stuff like that. In terms of what people want to know about and stuff like that, politically and stuff like that. So that's something I think that people are are very concerned about, especially with Ukraine and other issues that are, are you know are being talked about right now around the world and stuff like that. So I just want to know how we can get more equality so that, because one of the most important things for blind people is access to information. I knew that when I worked for the radio reading service in Alaska. So, you know, I think access to information, access to information is what I want to uh, stress today. Thank you so much, both all of you, Monica, Brian, and, um, oh my goodness, I'm sorry. And Troy. And Troy, I'm sorry, Troy. Thank you very much. 
So thank you for that, Lynn. And Monica, I'd like to turn, turn to you first to see if you have any, any thoughts or reaction uh, to Lynn's comments. Well, I think it's, yeah, my reaction is um, not only to Lynn's um, comments, but really more broadly through, um, you know, as a reaction to just the points being made um, on the, on this, uh, during the panel discussion, you know, I think it's really, really important to continue striving to make sure that accessibility is an equal priority and not an afterthought. It's incumbent on all of us in our you know, in our internal discussions, in our external discussions. Um, I think organizations like ACB are so well-placed to raise awareness um, about this and, you know, to create awareness for the, for the need for accessibility consideration with policymakers where they're thinking about issues that don't on the surface, you know, to them intuitively implicate accessibility issues. So, you know, as part of that, I really encourage, I applaud ACB for organizing this session and I, and, um, and I think it's important to continue uh, organizing sessions like this, um, including with stakeholders from those other communities um, as well, you know, not uh, from the policymaker community, from the regulator community, as well as from with um, people representing organizations that focus really on privacy or security and safety. I think that getting these stakeholder groups together and talking to one each other will help raise awareness and hopefully plant the seed to make that or make accessibility considerations a regular part of the discussion as, as it should be. Thank you, Monica. And I, and I like, I really like how you phrased that. You know, earlier we talked about the executive order on diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility. And just because the A is put at the end, we need to ensure that accessibility is not an afterthought. So Troy, uh, I'll turn to you. What can ACB and our members do uh, to to fulfill that, to ensure that accessibility is an equal priority and not an afterthought with these these other priorities where we might not be in, in conflict, but there, there are uh, strong advocacy groups for privacy and security. And certainly we all want to be uh, have access to safe products, but how can we ensure a level playing field and that these um, products, services are and programs are accessible as well? First off, I'm, I'm excited they added the A, right? I yeah. would say even at the same time, and I think uh, maybe Monica said this as well, or someone else was describing this, there is a uptake in interest around DEI, whether that is what's happened through COVID, what's happened through, you know, um, you know Black Lives Matter, what, whatever is happening, uh, brands are increasingly focused on DEI. It turns... it. it it's a it's a calling card at least for Ira that we can say we 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 help implement that and the fact that accessibility has been added to that as an explicit term I think we should all just like frankly use that more like in our personal correspondence just keep adding that word accessibility it kind of highlights what I think was already um, part of equity right a part of inclusion um, so I think that's that's simple like for myself um, I'm using that. The, the A there quite a bit and people are like, what's the A for? So I'm, I'm having to explain. Um, and that's just, we, we need to latch on to that momentum. 
And I think that the next one, don't, um, don't discount storytelling. People remember stories. So whether you're talking about how Meta or um, Democracy Live has improved, um, quote unquote, accessibility, when you describe the story and you make it personal, it's hard to look away. It's hard to make it a, it turns it from a concept to something that people can relate to. And um, I can tell you being CEO, I, Ira, have a, I have thousands of stories um, uh, about accessibility and the challenges. And I would say, um, reach out to me, reach out. I have data, I have information. Um, we're obviously a small company and we're very busy, but I'm always here to entertain ideas and thoughts about how the information we have, the data we have could improve the outcomes more generally of this, this group and this population. Thank you, Troy. And final thoughts go to you, uh, Brian, with Democracy Live on any recommendations for ACB or our members on how we can ensure accessibility remains a, a key focus in the years to come. And Brian, you might be on yeah. mute. Yeah. <laughs> there you are. Well, thanks, Clark. And as I promised at the top of the hour, there is a homework assignment. And, and that is, you know, this is a legislative panel and, and I can absolutely tell you up to 20 years of, of being in the elections and voting empowerment space that nothing ha- happens without the will of the people mobilizing and galvanizing and speaking up and, and, and meeting with their local representative and getting legislation passed. Quite often, um, uh, what will end up happening is that the legislators might think it's a good idea, but when they start hearing from two, three, five, seven people, and sometimes that's all it takes is just a handful of mobilized uh, uh, voters who are who believe in this passionately enough to represent the interests of the broader community um, will get laws passed. I mentioned earlier that we're in about 26 states, and I'm pretty sure about 24 or 25 of them was because of uh, organizations like ACB advocating and educating and reaching out to legislators and and nobody wants to disenfranchise at least most people don't want to intentionally disenfranchise <laughs> voters right but there's a lot of misinformation and disinformation out there so as i think monica mentioned earlier you know getting out of our silos and coming together in conversation and collaboration and then reaching out to your elected leaders um we have seen it happen we have seen it happen the last 24 months you know since the 2020 election I think we have another 10 or 12 states that have recently come on board and, and, and passed legislation in large part, um, Clark, to your efforts at ACB and the legislative efforts of, of organizations um, around the country. But really, it's been a, you guys have been a fantastic you know, leader and pioneer in, in, in trying to blaze the trail for those 26 states. And I think if my math is correct, what is that? Another 24 states left. And, and I think you're going to get there. Um, you know, heading in the next 24 uh, presidential election. So again, it, it's it's realizing that this is a very specific issue. I know that with with Monica and Troy, you know, they have a lot of different areas of of, of accessibility and interest that they're serving. You know, for us, we're kind of uh, you know in, in a very focused area, which is to ensure that you know the franchise and the vote and the foundation of our democracy is spread to everyone. That means that everyone's small d democracy has to rise up and, and demand it. And I can tell you, they will listen to you if you're mobilized and, and you make enough phone calls. So that's your homework assignment. And, and Clark, I want to thank you for the opportunity. Well, thank you, Brian, 
uh, Brian Finney with Democracy Live, Troy Attilio from Ira, and Monica Desai with Meta. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. Um, this is this is the starting point, right? This is not the last conversation, but it's one of the first conversations on how we can in- ensure that accessibility remains a, a top priority and enhances privacy, safety, and security. So thank you all for joining us here today, and we'll be back with our closing general session. Hello. Welcome to the breakout session for Get Up and Get Moving. I am so happy that everyone can join us. If it's here on um, Zoom or on Media 7. So to start out, I would like just to introduce our full committee um, to get going. So here with me today, I have Amanda Selm and Terry Soares. I can't even say it sometimes. Um, (laughs) Tony Stevens. And then we actually have Tom Tobin, who's the chair. JoLynn Bailey-Page, Leslie Spoon, Dan Dillon, Clark Raftall, and... um, probably our new communication person. Have I left anyone out? I don't think so. So um, that's kind of our little group. So, but we're small, but we're mighty, but we need everyone else's help to get us going and get up and get moving and advocating. Um, So we're going to focus on patient relations and self-advocacy. So um, myself, Tony's going to kind of talk about some national statistics. Uh, Terry is a respiratory therapist, so she's going to talk from a respiratory therapist standpoint. And Amanda being someone who is blind, low vision, and advocating for herself and then advocating as a parent. So, and I have a couple different roles. I am a healthcare professional myself. I am a medical massage practitioner. And I have low vision and my husband is totally blind and hearing impaired. So, you know, I just want to talk about how important it is to advocate, um, to get to know that your patient relations. Remember that you always have patient relations. You always have a way to advocate. And we're just going to kind of touch a lot of the basics today, but there's a lot more that you can always do. So, um, you know, we, we want to talk about durable medical. We want to make sure that that's accessible. We want to do telehealth. I've done telehealth myself through the pandemic, and it's still going to be common throughout our life now. So not all of it's accessible. And we want to make sure that telehealth is always accessible. You don't have to have a smartphone. You, know, you don't have to have a computer. Um, they always say you do, but you don't have to. And we're not going to get technically into all of that, but just know that there are ways to, to advocate for your healthcare in that situation. And I, I want to share some of my own personal stuff with you to start things off before we get into a lot of the statistics and then share hearing how, as a professional, how Terry comes at it. But myself, as a as a practitioner, I worked at Sanford Health, and I ran a department. And so you're going to hear about patient surveys. And I'm sure all of you get a patient survey, if it's a doctor's appointment or a hospital or whenever you go and see someone, you always get a patient survey. And those are really, truly important. And I used to tell my 
my clients, my patients, how important that was to fill those out because it really affected my job. It came back to my receptionist, how they, how they interacted with my people, my patients, um, but it was scored. And that actually ends up being scored as part of the hospital, but it's scored on how I get reviewed as a practitioner. So Terry will talk a little bit more about that and the importance. But I have, I've had a lot of health issues. My husband's had a lot of health issues. So I've had to learn a lot of advocacy over the years, but especially recently. Um, it started back in, I would say we had quite a few years right in a row between my husband and I. It seemed like one of us had a major issue. Um, but one of the issues that he had that I want to talk about is he fell off um, a roof. 15 feet down and he fractured his hip. He actually was up roofing, um, shingling with a friend as a contractor and he knew where he was at, but he actually just kind of forgot that he was there and got up and walked and walked, fell off. And luckily he fell onto grass, but he couldn't feel his lower limbs when he fell, first fell. And <clears throat> he got into the ER brought him in as a trauma patient and they had a hard time understanding that he couldn't not just see them, but he couldn't hear them. So it was a little bit of a challenge for them to comprehend that someone just walked off a roof and it's blind and you're on a roof. So they were trying to comprehend that as they were trying to treat him, but they didn't always understand that he couldn't, he couldn't comprehend everything that they were doing because he didn't have his hearing aids in all the time because of some of the testing. And they would try to show him stuff. So I'm, I'm there saying, he can't hear you. He can't see what you're doing. You have to touch. You have to show them. So it was a constant thing in the ER, but it really got apparent when we got upstairs into the room because he was supposed to see an orthopedic surgeon. They were supposed to come up and see him. He had seen one surgeon, but a specialist. And that surgeon never showed. And I'm pretty quiet until I have a temper. Um, and I blew. I blew with the nurse, the manager. And she and I had it out in the hallway because they refused to come see him. And I said, no, he's... He's like any other patient. He needs to be seen. And I, at the time, I, my manager was a director and everyone called her the bulldog. And she was like, do I need to interfere? And I'm like, I don't think so. So then she would overhear me and she would realize that, no, I don't need to. But in the long run, long story short is that her and I headed out. A doctor ended up calling us, didn't come and see us, but he actually called and talked to us on the phone about the game plan because I was persistent. I did not give up because he had been there. We had not seen a surgeon. We didn't know if he was having surgery the next morning. They weren't giving him food. We didn't have anything going on. We had no idea. And I'm like, this is not fair to him. He hasn't eaten all day. You haven't given him anything. We need to know what's happening. So I was persistent. 
I went to work the next day, went up to see him because he was in the same hospital. I came to find out that my director had contacted the patient relations and patient relations had been up to see him because of the care that he had gotten. And it continued. I mean, there's more to that story, but it had happened. But the patient relations had to get involved to continue to get better care. Um, so then when he had actually hurt his shoulder also besides his hip, but he, he had hurt his shoulder and I am a medical massage practitioner. So soft tissue was my, my life. I knew soft tissue and they started, decided they were going to do physical therapy on it. And I had touched his shoulder and I could tell that I could feel that there was a tear and he was hurting really bad. It got worse after he had done it. And I said, you're not doing it anymore. I said, you need an MRI. And the PA refused to listen to me. And he went, he started showing him exercises to do. And I'm like, you know, you, you have to touch him. You have to take his arm. You have to take a good hand and show him what you want him to do. Because don't look at me, but you talk to him and you treat him like a human. And he eventually did not get that MRI in the hospital. We went around. I worked with the patient relations. The OT backed me on it and said, you're absolutely right. He needs an MRI. And he did get that MRI. It was torn. If he would have done PT, it would have bled more. But it was, he had a sack full of blood in his tissues. So luckily... I persisted, but it's, it's sad when they don't believe us. So that's why we have to really be persistent. That's part of the advocacy. You have to do it in a nice way, but you have to be persistent of how to do it. Um, I went seven hours with a blood clot that same year because I got in a blood clot and it was a full-blown blood clot. And the hospitalist refused to give me some medicine to give me a shot because I had a vision problem and didn't think I could do my own shots. I was appalled. I was just shocked at that because, you know, us we're blind, visually impaired, give yourself shots all the time for diabetes. But it was just that inability to know and to educate. So unfortunately, we're always having to educate the providers, which we shouldn't have to, but that's part of the advocacy program that we have to do and start with. So that's just some of my own personal stuff to kind of start it off. But I want to introduce Tony Stevens, who is our um, department director of development and communications at the moment. Welcome, Tony. How are you? Hey, Connie. I'm doing well. Thanks. Thank you so much for, for kicking things off. Yeah, you know, it's, I don't know if it's the best kickoff, but it's kind of, you know, it's so much for advocacy, it isn't it? You know, it's, there's a lot of statistics. Well, and you're going to talk. Statistics and misrepresentations, I think, the misconceptions that you nailed it at yeah. the end there with the shot, right? Yeah, very much so. I yeah. mean, it's the very much misconceptions. So yeah. um, I'd like you to talk about some of the statistics and, you know, misconceptions. Um, 
Yeah, I, th- I think we can definitely jump right into that. Um, you know, what I'd like to do for everybody today is uh, I'm, I'm the kind of person that loves to ask, you know, not just what, like what are some numbers, what are some data, but the whys, right? I'm always more curious by the whys as well. Um, you know, I can give a perfect example, you know, um, 100% of us on this panel today have probably experienced something similar to what Connie's felt in some degree as people who are blind and people that have dealt with those misconceptions of the doctor. Uh, what I want to dive into is the why. Why are these things happening? What is it that's driving? And is it going to get worse? Is it going to get better? As we come out of probably one of the most significant health events in modern history, what is the landscape going to look for us in the future? So, you know, I have an opportunity to share some data. Uh, the data is going to cover sort of the bandwidth of, of our community, people who are blind as patients, right? What, what, what do we look like from the larger macro, right, collectively, so that we know when we're advocating on things as a collective group, uh, we know that there's some weight behind it with, with just what the numbers tell us ourselves and to why this is an important issue, right? It's personal for so many of us, but it's also a big issue for everybody throughout our community that impacts on a large scale. So we're going to talk about some of that data. We're also going to talk a little bit about where the industry is going, because I think that's going to really determine how patient relations is probably going to change. We're going to hear from Terry in a minute about the importance of, you know, just not just in blindness, but the, the role that that patient relations process plays and bringing us better healthcare, right? Not just for people who are blind or visually impaired, but for everybody across the board, everyone that has having health concerns and health issues. Um, but we're gonna look a little bit at how that's gonna change and what does that mean for the future? Because uh, you know, you talked about telemedicine, I'm gonna talk a little bit about that. Um, but telemedicine isn't just changing the way we, we meet the doctor from our house, but it's also gonna probably change the way that our doctor offices are, in, are adapting to this new staffing differences of differential of staffing and responsibilities by everybody that's going online. So we'll, we'll end it with that uh, before hopping over to Terry, who can share with us sort of that, that structure hierarchy in place that, uh, you know, the, sort of pulling back the curtain on uh, how we can successfully be our own best self-advocate as we've known throughout our lives as people who are blind and vision impaired, the criticalness of that. So, all right, who are we as a community? So we know that roughly about 7 million Americans across the country have significant vision loss. That's more than the 33 or 35 million Americans that have some vision loss, meaning even with glasses, they can't read the New York Times or the Washington Post or the uh, Orlando Sentinel Times, you know, that well with their eyes, right? Uh, they need they need assistance. So, you know, 33, 35 million Americans don't see well, but of those 7 million are the significant ones with real vision loss, right? Of those, we know that a million of them are the total blindness, our friends and ourselves, many of us who maybe are NLP or have no sight at all. But we know overwhelmingly at large, the oh, large majority of our population has still some vision, which oftentimes can create that awkward confusion in the medical office. Uh, we walk in maybe with Coke bottles on our heads and people think, oh, well, this person can see fine. Here, take all these forms, go sit down over there, uh, you know, and kind of thing. So oftentimes with our community, we have those struggles and sort of the misconceptions of particularly with people that are low vision specifically. Um, blindness overwhelmingly is, is, is more felt in communities of color. We know this to be very true. Uh, part in fact, that diabetes is now the leading cause of blindness in our country with diabetic retinopathy impacting roughly one third of the 35 million Americans, or excuse me, 34 million Americans who have diabetes in the United States. So roughly one third of those uh, are at risk of having diabetic retinopathy. And what that means is it doesn't mean that if you have diabetic retinopathy, you're not totally blind yet, you haven't lost all your sight, but it's a sliding scale, right? Um, depending on where a person is with their managing their diabetes, that's going to put more strain and stress on their ocular health, their eye health, which is going to in turn, unfortunately, cause oftentimes the leading cause of blindness now in our country. 
Now we know that that's going to impact communities of color so much more. You know, while it's like eight, six to eight percent amongst white Americans, it's roughly 11 percent amongst uh, African Americans, higher amongst uh, Latino Americans, Latina community, uh, even more so amongst our indigenous people. So uh, you were more likely, unfortunately, to have diabetes if you're in a community of color and as such, more likely to have vision loss. So we experience much more in those communities of color where we already know that we have other issues as well in terms of education, in terms of other health equities, access to affordable health care. All the things that make going to the doctor or having a good paying job to where you can take off time to go to the doctor, a stress already. So for so many people in our community, for millions of people in our community, uh, you know, there's already these pre-existing stresses because of the social inequities around our health and our well-being. So that's one of the missions of the conference. And it's important for us to think of that and put that hat on. Um, <clears throat> because when we look at the care that we're giving, especially coming out of, of COVID, we have experienced a lot of challenges. There are the things that you mentioned, Connie, as well, that are the misconceptions people have. We know those are, are raging throughout our community about the idea that you walk in as a patient, maybe you're by yourself already. People are sort of manhandling you, forcing you around, dragging you around, not using proper you know, uh, descriptive techniques and orientation, um, or just, you know, in a sense, just con condescending talk in a sense sometimes. So these are not unfamiliar stories we get here in the national office, unfortunately, ACP. Um, that's changing significantly. Now, you had mentioned telemedicine. I want to take just a few minutes to talk about telemedicine because that's going to change the landscape of our health because it's a quarter billion dollar industry this year. Telemedicine is a, not billion, let me correct myself. Let me add a few more zeros to that. 250 billion, making it a quarter trillion dollar industry right now. Telemedicine has exploded, and no surprise because of the pandemic. But what the pandemic has done is it has really forced the system to move into something that it was hoping to move into over a longer period of time. Things like getting approval from insurance companies to have telemed visits, that's now taken care of. So uh, now insurance will cover a lot of telemed visits. In fact, the industry says two-thirds of doctor visits can be treated by uh, a telemed visit, meaning it's a virtual visit. Um, of those, uh, roughly, let's see, going into the pandemic, at the height of the pandemic, but it, it increased 78-fold, meaning 78 times uh, the doctor visits went from where telemed was in 2019 to where it was in you know a year into the pandemic before people started to get vaccinated. Even as we've sort of settled down, they're saying the industry is saying that it has stabilized, so that we're only at 32 uh, percent of patients now doing telemed visits, but it's still a 38% fold or increase from what it was before. What does that mean, right? And it depends in some sense about what areas are these two-thirds that you're getting help from. Um, we know that 50% of psychological visits now are telemed and will probably continue to be so into the future. Um, we know that amongst our blindness and visually impaired community, that's, that's an important number to think in the back of our heads. Because one quarter of people who are blind and visually impaired have major stress, psychological stress in their lives. Their blindness and the life that they live as the other comorbidities around their blindness have created significant stress far greater than the general population or general public. So we have that one out of four people who are blind or visually impaired are in need of psychological care. And 50% of these visits are now telemedicine, right? Um, we have in terms of uh, the the numbers, as I said, they're somewhat stabilizing, stabilizing even as the pandemic is getting better. Um, they're thinking that's going to kind of be the sweet spot uh, in terms of the number of people and the capabilities. But what does that mean for the doctor offices? Well, it only takes, you know, especially let's say take a mental health facility, a therapist down the street, right? That may be a, a therapy clinic 
a psychological clinic down the street. Now, 50% of their patients are going to be meeting remotely. Well, that's going to move the staff out, right? They're, they're no longer going to pay for a full-time staff at that front desk uh, because if they're only seeing 50% of the patients, you know, they're, re- they're moving their resources and alloc- reallocating their resources to other places. So what does that mean? Well, well, I guess we can probably hypothesize that we're not going to be too surprised to start seeing more efficiencies improve in medical offices, meaning things like kiosks and taking away one of the greater expenses in the medical office, your staff, if so much can be done virtually or remotely. Um, These are things that we're anticipating into the future, and these are headaches that we're working on currently with ACB. Uh, I would ask folks to check out our medical or health imperatives towards durable medical goods, but also just equitable health in terms of uh, what we're advocating for in this conference, um, because it definitely is painting a landscape that, you know, it used to be we could sit down with our doctor, we could sit down with our nurse in the office and just kind of have a chat with them. They could see us operating and moving freely and saying, you know, I've got it from here. I can walk my own self around and start walking down the hall and showing a little bit of that confidence, that independence that can maybe break down the misconceptions people have. Uh, now we're just a face on the screen with something on a chart that says this person is blind, legally blind. Um, so we don't have the opportunity to dynamically engage and break down misconceptions. Uh, it changes the relationship in the ways that we have to advocate for ourselves. Um, and oftentimes it could be a benefit, I will agree, because it's nice when it works, because it's hard for us to get you know, paratransit scheduled and to get in the doctor's office. But at the same time, uh, we're finding that the industry is changing as such. Um, as it's unfortunately, I still can't with my doctor down the street uh, navigate the telemed system. You know, it's a big frustration. So it's something to think about for the future. Um, that's a bit of the data and, and kind of where the industry is going, Connie. Um, and, you know, I think that kind of sets us up into how is the system developed and, and, and really uh, what systems are in place as patient advocates. Um, and so I'll throw it back to you. And I think we're, we're going to have a chance to hear from Terry now as well. So. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Tony, very much. I mean, you're you're right on. And, you know, I just sitting here thinking about it. I've been in the healthcare p- profession since 1996 and how things have changed over the time. Um, some good, some bad, but it's 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 changing and we still have a long ways to go. But it's we're we're coming as long as we can keep working together and advocating, you know, ACB is making headways. So thank you, um, Terry. Uh, welcome. Glad to have you here. So you are a respiratory therapist, and you've been in the healthcare profession for quite a while too. So I got a few questions for you. Um, so as a as a respiratory therapist, or as a, so as a healthcare provider, but as especially since you're respiratory, give us your input or your thoughts on how the healthcare system set up to leverage patient feedback and advocacy. Okay, so thank you so much. I'm so glad to be part of this panel. And yeah, I've been in the field for over 30 years, um, not just as a critical care respiratory therapist, but as an educator, quality assurance officer, and joint commission regulatory. And that's important language. Um, I'm not going to be doing the um, alphabet soup, which we all tend to do sometimes, but I just want to go back to what happened um, with telemedicine and stuff like that after I am done speaking about what you can do immediately to get advocacy and attention when your needs are met. 
As a healthcare provider, our goal is there to take care of you, mind, body, and spirit. Unfortunately, due to many factors in the healthcare field, we are trained to do our ABCs and one, two, threes. And sometimes we get so focused on our differential diagnosis. Differential diagnosis is we're trying to get down to what is truly the acute, what is going on right now that we need to focus on. And that sometimes can be a little distracting. So a little bit about my story. Yes, I'm in the medical field for 30 years, but I literally went blind while I was at work at bedside. So I instantly went from healthcare provider to a blind patient. And let me just tell you, there is nobody in our panel that can talk about that, but myself. And as a healthcare provider making that instant change, I see all the opportunities of improvement. And it was so important, Connie, when you were sharing your story of how you got your patient representative involved. There is an escalation when you feel that, you know, they're not listening to you regarding your IV, that you feel something wet, you can't tell if it's bleeding. Um, There's many factors that you can do. The first thing is, is orientation when you get into the hospital or orientation to your doctor's office. You can ask. Um, It is part of joint commission that within the first 30 minutes that you are orientated to your room. Now, what's really interesting in order to be compliance with this, this is a regulatory thing that must be done. A lot of hospitals has gone to videos. Well, those videos are closed captioned. Their videos are, uh, you know, that way. But I reached out to Orlando Health and now they're looking at audio description. So if there is something that is occurring that you need modified and special accommodations, We don't know as a healthcare provider, we need to be taught, like you said, Connie and Tony, and our goal is to help you get healthier and better. Um, Our goal is not to make anything stressful, but there can be some miscommunications that occur, but we have that opportunity. So if you're lying in bed in the hospital and things don't feel right, you talk to your nurse. If your nurse doesn't seem to respond to your needs, you ask to talk to the charge nurse. Then above that, in every single hospital, even if it's a 10-bed hospital, they have a nursing supervisor. And that nursing supervisor, can, tr- and that's 24 hours a day, can mm-hmm. contact the patient experience, the patient coordinator. They're named many different ways. Do you know why, Connie, it's so important that the hospital has a patient customer service department now? I do, but let I'll let you tell me. Okay. You can actually go and see what grade you get from your hospital and your doctor. So it's the healthcare grade. And there is a website where you can go in, you type in your doctor's name, you type in the hospital, you type in your dentist, anybody, and you get a healthcare grade. And guess who modifies their payment depending on your health grade and reaching what's called benchmarking. Benchmarking is where the national standards are set by different, um, either the American Medical Association, the AMA, or the NIH, the National National Institute of Health. And if you're not reaching those benchmarks, guess who doesn't pay you? 
Medicare and Medicaid. Medicaid, yes. Yes. And 80% of a hospital is eight is Medicare dependent. That's what they pay the bills to keep the lights on. So us, majority of us that are in our situation, we're not disabled. We just have abilities in a different way. And what we got to do is learn to amplify our voice. We are all MVPs, which is the most valuable person. And we need to take care of ourselves and speak up. Never assume that they know. Never assume anything. And just keep repeating the same thing over and over again. And if you don't get what you need, you just ask, can I talk to someone else? Who's your boss? And everybody has a boss, even the CEO. It's called the board of directors. So, <laughs> so Tony, yeah. what do you think about um, what you've learned about HIPAA and all these other barriers that we are facing in the healthcare field when you were doing your research? So I have been mesmerized. I was not familiar until even diving into this about what the Joint Commission was until we started putting this panel together, which has been fascinating. Um, you know, in terms of uh, HIPAA and our privacy rights, uh, there is there's always concerns over a lot of people with disabilities in terms of their privacy. Uh, what and- I've always found interesting is I always wonder if you all are the same way, but it's they give you a form, your HIPAA form, and they say sign here. Yeah, and a lot of people actually reads the HIPAA. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And the HIPAA didn't come out to 1996. And we started on telemedicine in 1993. A lot of people don't realize that in the medical field, if we would have started that work in 93, we would have never been able to have healthcare today the way we see it. It took that long because in three years, and I was three years in the field and I was so excited that I got tapped on the shoulder and got to be a part of that beginning part of telemedicine. And um, first was psychology, and then it was patient education, because we have studies from the 90s that if you do more than one bus transfer, the luck that you're going to get that patient in for patient education is, oh, it's like less than 7%. And it's really, so we were starting telemedicine and then 1996, bam, this big old HIPAA, which we might as well called it the big hippo, which is healthcare insurance, privacy and protection act. Protection Act. Protection Basically act. what it is, it was protecting your records to be able to transfer and all that, that. And they thought they were helping but it stopped our train flat. It took all of the energy out. And we really had to work almost 10 years to get telemedicine even to rethink again, because um, the government then threw in by 2010 that we had to have everything computerized. Well, that was fact- fantastic, except for HIPAA wouldn't allow, for example, Connie, you are a medical massage therapist. I work at a hospital. Tony, you're the paramedic, and Amanda is the family member of, say, her husband needed to get care. Well, of course, call 911. Tony, you would go pick her up. We should take her to the hospital. We take care of her husband, and then we take her for therapy. And you think all of us could talk together? No, that's not how it works. (laughs) So we have this HIPAA thing, not hippo. I call it the big hippo in the room. But We're trying to figure that out. So the great news is, is there's a global initiative for inclusive medical care. 
inclusive medical services. And I'm here to tell you, not only do we have the numbers in the United States, but we have 1 billion people in the world that are not able to achieve their healthcare needs because of all the logistics, the lack of being able to do self-care at home. Like if you're on a blood thinner or you're on blood pressure medicine, you got to take your blood pressure. Well, if you can't hear it or see it, how is that achievable? So with telemedicine, the challenge is, is we have to pretty much any of us that are computer. Now I'm not a computer whiz, but know that once you've already established a computer program, it's a lot harder to add something to that. So what I'm here to tell you is next year, um, because it happened yesterday, I had some friends go, is the global HIMS, International Global Conference in Orlando every year. And basically that's the health information management systems. So every management system, every um, program that's out there that people are using for telemedicine actually met here yesterday. So I believe we at ACB should start a task force that's inclusive medical care. And it'd be an honor if I'd be a part of it and I don't mind. I'll I'll take the chair. And we'll definitely really give you the ticket it. that you can go in or, since you're in Orlando. You get the sign first. And you can go down. There yeah. yeah. And it's well, so important that we collaborate yeah. with the companies and mm-hmm. but be our own advocacy. So yes. I'm super excited yeah. to let you guys know that going from a healthcare provider, I'm embarrassed. Um, I don't know if I've ever had a blind patient. Because my role as a healthcare provider is to keep your heart beating and keep you breathing or deliver your baby. And there was times that I would rush into a room. I had no idea because HIPAA, you're not allowed to say blind patient so-and-so on the door. And there's only so many signs. So we'd have to do like an apple or a pair of sunglasses or it's just super crazy. All the obstacles that both sides have to be. So I'm really glad. I love what Connie said about pulling the blind back and Tony allowing me the opportunity to kind of say, we want to work together. We want to collaborate. And I'm letting everybody know that we in the healthcare field, we went in it to make people healthier. And mm-hmm. the only way to do that is to become a team and just speak up when your needs are not getting yeah. met, speak right. up and advocate for yourself. So thank you, everybody. Thanks, Terry. So yes, thanks, Terry. Great time. Um, Tony, thanks too. So yeah, let's bring it back over to Amanda and kind of bring it back home. So um, Amanda, happy to have you with us. And uh, so being a parent or being someone who is low vision, um, we want you to kind of talk about your own health and what it's like for you. So also as a, as a parent, share a little bit about the challenges advocating for yourself as well as for your children. Okay. All right. Well, those are, those are great. Those are great questions. So the, the first thing is, is that I want to say that um, even though we're entering um, post-pandemic world and we were in pandemic world, 
there has been no change um, for for me as an advocate. It just makes me want to advocate harder. Okay, so we have these rules about social distancing and wearing masks and things like that. Okay, I found it very challenging for me to communicate and to tell others to communicate um, when it came to talking about social distancing. You know, they were kind of afraid at first because of the the whole that the world just the, when it first shut down, they were saying you need to be six feet apart. So something that I had to do was say, look, all I'm going to do is touch your elbow. If you wait to put a glove on, I will. Um, but or if it was in an office that had bright light and they were wearing a brighter color scrubs, I would say I can follow you. Um, but for for me. Um, advocating in a pandemic world was was no different. Now, I will say that um, I did have to, um, let's see, in 2020, um, when COVID first began, something that I did have to do was I had to ask my doctor a lot of questions. At that point, I was pregnant with my second child, and, I, and they were taking... Um, non-emergent um, cases at the time at my doctor's office. And I had to ask them, I had to say, listen, I, I, I missed my 24-week visit. What do we do? And they said, well, we can't be doing that uh, because I needed an ultrasound for a potential um, high-risk pregnancy. And so I had to basically say, well, when am I going to get that? In a nice way, obviously. I was a little agitated, but I do advocate nicely, just so y'all know. I don't have mama's tiger voice on all the time. Um, But I basically said, when am I going to get that? I need that. And, you know, I need need people to um, give me what I need so that I can understand how to best help myself and my unborn child. So, um, so that was one of the instances, Connie, another instance about me, and then I'll kind of talk about my, my child's children here in just a second. Another instance was when, um, I, when we did do the ultrasound at that time, I needed someone to tell me exactly what was going on, uh, with her kidneys and her heart, because those were the things that she was looking at. So I asked, the maternal fetal uh, medicine doctor to um, explain what is going on because I don't, I I can't see this ultrasound. It's super tiny. And at that time, 3D, 3D actual where you can feel um, was popular. It was not available, although she said it should be um, after having this conversation. So she was able to explain it to me using um, my hands. I'm like, you can use my hands to tell me how things look. You can, you can put objects in front of me and tell me how things look. And she did. So, because I asked for that. So the bottom line for me is you are in charge of your care. Um, No one else is going to advocate for you. And this brings me into my children. Um, I am the advocate for both of my children. So one thing that I started to notice, and this is pandemic, post-pandemic, pre-pandemic, is that when 
you go into a doctor's office and they see that you're visually impaired and that you have the kids, they're kind of like, okay, okay, what kid, you know, um, I'm like, well, I can't read these forms. Oh, well, who is with you? I don't have anyone with me. So can you help me fill out these forms? Uh, that's not my job. I said, okay, well, then can we please find someone that can help me fill out these forms? Because I cannot read them. They're not in large print. Um, you know, I, I explained, I'm like, listen, and I, I said, listen, I have two screaming kids at my, my ankles. I need help. And of course, at that point, you know, when I politely ask for Again, I, I typically get that. But what I also have looked for is, is that form available online in an accessible format. So I use the app like the MyChart to track my data, fill out my forms, fill out my children's forms. Um, so that's one way I obtain their data and can communicate with their doctors Um Connie, one time I had to go to the hospital to get my youngest an ultrasound. And I had no idea where I was going um, when I got to the hospital. So I messaged her pediatrician and I said, I have no clue where I'm going. Can you please tell me where I need to go? Or can you have someone from your office staff tell me where I need to go? Because I've never been to this building um, on the outside. I don't know what it looks like. It was brand new. And they were very kind enough to help me get what I needed. Um, so the bottom line from my takeaway from what Tony has said, what Terry has said, and what you have said, Connie, is that you're in charge. You're in charge. Don't don't back down. And you know, don't back down for your fam- for your family members that need you to be the advocate for them. That's great, you know, Amanda. And that that's that's just it. You you can't back down. So Mm-mm. you know, it's a, a good example because you know, and if you do it in a nice way, they are going to cooperate. You know, in most yes. places, like you know, I think of um, we have two big health systems here in in Sioux Falls. You know, and both places have volunteers. You know, mm-hmm. um, if you need to get in and you don't know where you're going. Um, as long as you get to a front desk or to an area, I mean, even our valets will say, do you need assistance? You know, and they'll make sure that you'll get assistance. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times it's just, you know, being known or going up and asking, may I have assistance? And mm-hmm. it may not be that person, but it may be someone else that can help you, you know? Yes. Um, and I'm the same way. Sometimes I fill out stuff ahead of time online. I can do it. Um, my husband doesn't. I do it for him. but. You know, I have, you know, I just had surgery at Mayo and their system is totally different than what I Mm -hmm. have at Sanford, but it's connected to Sanford. But then I have my eye doctors who I live at, you know, and their system is different. So it's each system. Some are more accessible and some aren't accessible. So, yes, you know, so it's just kind of a trial by error. And if it's not, then you just go in and you have to start working with them and educating, too. Sure. Um, I have another one question for you if you don't mind okay sure um on a universal design is commonly discussed in a physical access what would a universal accessibility look like in the perfect world as a patient and a parent navigating the healthcare system wow that's a great question and i i pondered that for a little bit when 
um, we were we were discussing this. So a universal system would be that we, uh, in a perfect world, we would walk in, we would get the the treatment that we needed, um, and we would walk out. We'd have no people asking us, you know, questions or being awkward around us or treating us differently. That's the perfect world. So what does that look like to me? That looks like we we need medical professionals trained to work with people with disabilities um, and blind and low vision um, individuals. Um, So that goes back to, uh, you know, not just that goes that that should be a part of their education. Otherwise, like it's very simple to just uh, for a person to say, hey, please don't drag my cane. Let me hold on to your elbow. Or do cytokine. Cytokine is very um, easy to teach. If you have a person, I mean, they do this training for people that are in a wheelchair. Uh, so my question is, is why don't we have training for individuals who are deaf and hard of hearing and blind and low vision? That's my question. I think that we need that. Um, I think we need accessibility. Hello, imperative. I think we need accessibility on our websites. I think we need the forms to be um, accessible. I think, especially if we're going to go into a world where we have kiosks, especially if we're going to go into a world where people are going to sit at a front desk and say, this is not my job. I think we need to have our websites accessible. I think we need to have those forms accessible and any kind of apps like my chart and pharmacy apps. We need to have those accessible. So it's very important to communicate when you go virtually to the hill that we need that accessibility as well as audio description and um, in all of our medical materials, like our videos and things like that. Um, I think, I, I think that is important to making sure that we all have equal opportunity um, to the information that is being given and to not have someone else give that information to us or to provide that information for us. Hey, Connie, can I have a moment to respond to the great information, Amanda? Sure. Okay. So, Amanda, you are so right. We in the medical field do not get but maybe one hour out of our 300 hours of training and everything regarding um, sensitivity of loss of sense or loss of sight or loss of hearing um, about accommodations because they're ever changing. But we at American Council of the Blind can take that opportunity because being a healthcare provider, we have to have continuing medical education. And for me, I have to do 24 hours every two years. And that's where we need to hit it because we are constantly, you know, it's called practicing medicine. It's not perfect medicine because we don't have the answers and we're always continuously learning about the human body, but it's also dealing with the human body, the mind, body, and spirit. So we have an opportunity as ACB to collaborate with the different um, the endocrinologist, the, um, a, um, the physicians association, the respiratory care association, the affiliates, and actually create um, sensitivity courses and educate them on all the different tools. Like 
I'm a respiratory therapist for 30 years. You know what 16 years of my specialty was? Neonates. You know, oxygen. What do we cause? You know, um, retinal detachments. And I never heard of ACD. I'm like, you guys have been around for 60 years. I have never heard of you guys. And that upset me as a healthcare provider. So that's why I personally am starting to call my organizations that I have previously spoken at and start talking to them about audio description um, and different devices and different tools and get them to be aware because the medical companies are always constantly calling the clinicians when they're coming out with new devices instead of the end users. And I'm like, so now we need to advocate for us and get, you know, your doctors, anybody that, you know, that's in the medical field say, Hey, do you know, I can't do this because it doesn't talk to me, but my phone talks to me. I can't remember who it was. Tony um, in the last few days have been amazing the information, but he's like, yeah, I walk into your Senator or house of representative and tell them to turn this uh, talk backs feature on. Um, I think right. that's like one of the best yeah. suggestions. It so is, you know, and respond that we still have an opportunity yeah. to educate um, our medical field and we have hope. We just got to build some collaboration. So we get do. Up, and we're going to do it. We're going to do it. We are, you know, and, I've done a lot of that training and I think we need to continue doing that training. Um, and I will have to say that I know some of the medical schools um, are teaching a little bit of um, the blindness skills to their, their medical students, but mm-hmm. it's a long ways to go. And it, so we have to work together and that's, you know, I know we're getting closer on time, um, but, it, and we want to open it up for questions here pretty soon, but just, you know, kind of to, to close it up between the three of us a little bit, um, as we as ACB can do stuff, you know, um, on the macro level, you know, how can we leverage, how can we get, what can national do to help? But again, it's on the nat- it's on the local level because how things are done in South Dakota might be done in different in Kentucky or in Florida or in Maryland, you know. We all have our own healthcare laws, you know, we all have regulations and a lot of them are the same, but every state has a different um, health department and you have different regulations. So that's the big thing is that we always have to make sure we know what those regulations are for each state and Mm -hmm. what the guidelines are for each state for if it's, go ahead, Tony. And I think in some sense for like affiliate leaders, Connie, I mean, the idea that, you know, my, my, uh, you know, the mother of my kids who I'm no longer with now, but she's a physician, you know, she takes the state boards, right? So much is anchored around state boards and they have to do their continuing education credits. An excellent opportunity for local engagement of advocacy for your local, Mm -hmm. you know, in Maryland, it would be the Maryland Optometric Association or the American, you know. Uh, the Maryland this or that, or, you know, um, endocrinologist or urologist or, you know, um, uh, and it's, it's the idea that these, again, it's, it's success on a micro level that can have a macro effect if we all work yes. towards doing this. And that's, that's one of the benefits that we've experienced in other areas over the decades of advocacy. Um, if it's like the local safe streets, like uh, accessible, audible pedestrian, accessible pedestrian signals, that's a state by state thing that we've had success in county levels, city levels, you know, and we're trying to get it on a national level, but we need to do both. So what we do on the national level at ACB is only reflected in, and 
we get the best practices. I don't know about you all, but when I go to Johns Hopkins here in Maryland, I get so excited because they, they I can tell, have gone through the training. Because it's nothing more exciting. Have you all had it where the person says, they don't even say anything, just, you want an elbow? And immediately, yeah. my stress is diminished. Because mm-hmm. they know, did it right out of the gate. You just know, yes. he asked me for an elbow, you she know. asked me for an elbow. I know they got me. Yeah, the male clinic's the same thing. You know, exactly. I mean, Mm -hmm. you could just tell walking into the male clinic. Um, when I was I lived there last fall, I mean, it was like they knew exactly. I mean, even just the check-in points, it was so amazing. So um, but you know, I have to tell you, you know, another story of my husband, you know, so he had a um a bug bite like three years ago, almost lost his middle finger. It started his finger got a little bit bad at night. And by the next morning, his hand was swelled. Um, his finger got bad. And within like, so we lived 10 blocks from the ER. Um, and it was super early morning. I looked at it and I had something going on. And I called and I said, I can't do this. But we rushed down to the ER. And luckily we did because he had an emergency surgery. It had gotten infected. We have no idea what type of bug bite it was. He had been working out in the garden. But the surgeon was a newer surgeon, um, and it was a trauma student, but he knew exactly how to work with my husband, Seth, and he knew that he was blind and hearing impaired, but he said, I'm going to take your other hand, and I'm going to show you exactly how I cut and what I did, and so you understand as I'm talking to you. And I was so impressed because no one had to tell him anything. He just Mm -hmm. took it upon himself, and he showed him everything. And I think it, it was because he's younger and he's, you know, maybe learning. Go ahead, Amanda. Um, this is Terry. Um, oh, Terry. I just, it's okay. Um, so I believe what we're saying is, is what kind of plan of action can we create to move forward? We all have the stories like Tony had indicated earlier, even myself, when I got attacked by two dogs, when I was blind and I love when the police said, what did they look like? Uh, I don't know, but here's their teeth marks on my hand. I got to go to surgery. Um, I had four legs. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And um, I think we really um, need to evaluate how to create a inclusive healthcare management task force. And what we can do is work with state affiliates and do medical expos and start gaining these relationships with the state accreditations and the state um, because there is a national way to do Mm -hmm. like CMEs for paramedics. Um, There are some of the professionals, medical professions that don't require state boards. They do national boards and it gets a little complicated and we're not going to be able to fix everything today. But I think the most important thing is, is we need to reach out and let everybody know today The Get Up and Get Moving campaign is committing to help you in any way. You reach out to any of us and we will work with you on developing an action plan that's going to work for you. Because in South Dakota, Kentucky, Virginia, and and Florida, it's all different. But one thing we all have are the same barriers. While, while Belinda's looking just to see if we have any yeah. questions or listening, I should say, oh. Belinda, um, to see yeah. if we have any questions in our last minutes. That's an excellent point. And so folks know we are on Facebook. The Get Up and Get Moving campaign is on Facebook. Um, you can find us through the uh, ACB Facebook. Shoot us a note. We can connect you. 
Um, but yeah, be a part of the campaign because when you connect via Facebook, uh, you'll find out what's going on at convention. Yep. And then you'll be able to have the conversation continue with us. So thanks, Jordan. Yeah. And any questions? I, or Connie, do you want to? Uh, yeah, I just didn't say, Mullen, do you, do you we have any questions we, at all? We do. And we have five minutes exactly. All and right. We have two, two raised hands. Let's go for it. Um, Deb, you can go ahead. Hi, this is Deb Marinos, and I have a course called Understanding the Diversity of Legal Blindness, um, and it's approved by the Oregon Health Authority as a cultural competence class, and during COVID, I turned it into an online on-demand two-hour course, and it's had some pretty good reviews and seems to be working. So one of the barriers I have in a suggestion or a question, um, it can be very expensive to get the accreditation CME process done. I've done it for several different organizations, a couple of national, so I'm, I'm, I'm capable of doing that. I'm also a blind person. But what's interesting is once people understand the diversity of what, what you just said about the low vision, or, you know, you can do this, you must be able to do that, why do you wear glasses, et cetera, they seem to, um, they seem to get it. Plus I do teach, you know, so anyway, that would be my question, if there's any kind of connection or support or something. Well, one, I think sharing, the more we can share information, right? So we'd be happy to right. share that on the Get Up and Get Moving and then have that as one of our resources as we work with our health partners. We, we're working to engage more corporate folks around the campaign and we'd love to get that information to share as best practices for, um, you know, we, uh, and I did a thing for the American Radiology uh, Association uh, a number of years ago on working with patients who are blind and visually impaired, how to, you know, the bedside manners. And then that got ended up getting shared in the breast cancer journal. So, I mean, these things can be used and circulated. So, it's, you know, let us know how to find that information. We can definitely yeah. If you yeah. want to get that to us, Deb, that would be great. Yeah, Deb, that would be great. And unfortunately, us in the medical field, we know what the cost is of a CEU. Um, when I see what American what a, uh, American Council of the Blind puts out for their CEUs, I'm like, I'm used to paying fifty to seventy five to one hundred and twenty five dollars because of the cost. And yeah, that cost barrier, we can definitely work on that. Thanks. And there are ways too to just get involved, even if it's through the local association, so that you can maybe get five minutes at the start of a meeting, or if there's something relevant. Um, you, you can be exposed. It's, it's about relationships and networking um, along with the CEs, just to know that you're people in the community and maybe you can say, hey, well, check this out as well. Or maybe you can right. work with somebody to help build one out because oftentimes most, the you know, are looking state, for content. Cultural competence is required. So they're not asking for any other. So the nurses and everybody else are coming. So I guess yeah. I just wanted to let you know, my company name is Adaptability for Life. And Yes, I charge for the course, but I'd be more than happy to partner and not charge for the course if we could get it out there more broadly. Yeah. It seems yeah. to be doing good work. Yeah. Deb, um, you know, Carrie, Carrie, um, your youth has is um has my information. If you want to reach out to Carrie, your president, and um, in Oregon there, and um, I can get in touch with you if you want to do that. Great. Sounds good. I Thank you. Two minutes left. Uh, right. yeah, next question, leader. We actually have to stop at uh, 4.29, so we've got a minute. Okay, let's see what the next question is. And we can take, if there's questions afterwards, you know, um, reach out to, you know, we can always reach out to Janet at Cynthia, ACB questions. Ahead. Hi, first, I just want to say thank you guys very much. I learned so much information. So I was diagnosed 
uh, 11 years ago with macular degeneration in my mid 40s. So I ha I'm still learning to deal with my vision loss. I'll be 56 in three weeks. So I moved to the state of Pennsylvania three plus years ago. And a lot of times I don't walk with my cane because I came from a state like New York and I was afraid to walk with my cane. I didn't have all the support and information and, and help that I have now in here in Pennsylvania. So two issues that bother me, like I get what you guys are saying about the hospitals and going to the doctor and stuff, because I've gone to dentists out here where I left there in tears because I told them I'm legally blind and could not read the documents that fell out. And if they can help me and I was told, no, take it home and have somebody else to help you fill it out. That's one of my issues. And another one is at the post office. I go to the post office and I want to send a certified letter, but I can't or mail and I can't fill out the form because Again, it's not large print. I have partial vision in my left eye. So and advocating for myself. You know, I got frustrated because I didn't know what to do. So on those two instances, who do I contact when they tell me they can't help me? It's not their job. I'm so sorry they, they to interrupt. It's we don't have enough time. Cynthia, if you want to just reach out to us, um, it, do questions at you know, Janet or at acbquestions.org and um, I can reach out to Janet Dickelman and we can try to get your answer answered that way. Yeah. Okay. If that but works since we're out of time. The key is it's not a reasonable time and reasonable manner. That's the ADA reasonable accommodation. So you need to let them know that their their accommodation is not really cutting the mustard. Right. Equal time, okay. equal manner. And that definitely, if you have to mail it and take it home, that's not equal time. And there's right. always there's always that. an office manager and a secretary. Always. Well, I just want to thank everyone. I know we're out of time, but thank you. I want to thank the panel and thank Cynthia. But um, yeah, it's. I'm sorry that we ran out of time for questions, but hopefully you guys all learned a lot, and uh, we're here to help everyone. So it's it's a, a three year campaign, and it's going to take time to get everything done and um, figured out. But that's what we're here for. And we'll be together. glad. We'll be glad Thanks. to. Get up and get moving and go to your state affiliates and your meetings and help you continue the conversation on inclusive medical health care. And if you're running the challenges, advocacy at acb.org. Exactly. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the last afternoon of the legislative seminar. I'm Jeff Tom, and with me is my fellow panelists, the person who's been at every legislative seminar for the last, I don't know how many, but he's a fixture, Mark Reichert. Thank you. Hi there. Hey. So, you know, uh, last year I was fortunate or unfortunate enough to be the only blindness community uh, advocate or individual of any stripe to be involved in the California Master Plan on Aging and I learned one lesson which I shouldn't have had to learn, but it was a very frustrating lesson. And that was that of all the segments of the aging community, the one about which people know the least in terms of our services and our needs is those of us who are blind or who have low vision. And that causes one major problem and that is we have fewer services available to us and uh, we have obviously less funding available to us so today we are going to talk about 
an initiative that through the Aging and Vision Loss National Coalition, which is a group of many, many organizations whose goal is to enhance services to older adults with vision loss, we're going to talk about an initiative that is aimed at solving that problem, at getting more funding, at uh, ensuring that we, we as seniors with vision loss have the services we need. And that, initial, that initiative that we are um, beginning to roll out here fairly soon is a bill that we know won't be passed in the form that we introduce it, but it is a bill that we think will cover the groundwork to show the larger community, that is the public, public officials, you know, advocates, what we need. And that bill, of which Mark Reichert is going to tell us a lot about today, is named after a friend of many of ours, a Californian, um, Teddy Joy Remhild, who is a, a long-time member of the American Council of the Blind and an incredible, she was a gerontologist, and an incredible advocate for blind people. So um, I'm going to turn it over to Mark, and Mark, why don't you give us the high points, although it is hard to do that in less than 10,000 words, uh, the high points of Teddy Joy's law and what it's going to be covering. Sure. Thanks so much. Uh, Yes. And particularly hard for those of us who, you know, the good Lord made very wordy. So I will try to uh, do the the high points, as you say, and uh, and then maybe uh, you can cross-examine me a bit about some of the items or especially those finer points that perhaps I didn't cover. So uh, like any piece of legislation, right, there are going to be major portions of it. Uh, I'm not going to do tons of jargon, but let's say, you know, for purpose, just to get, kind of get our brains calibrated together about this. Uh, often you will refer to, you know, this or that major portion of the bill being this, you know, the title, the title one, title two, title three, people who are really familiar with the ADA are pretty conversant with this sort of thing, right? All of the stuff having to do with web accessibility in the ADA is under so-called Title III of the bill. It's just a major portion of the ADA statute. So at the moment, Teddy Joy's law is in four parts or four titles. So the first title is all about trying to do that most critical thing that Jeff started to talk about, which, I mean, amen multiple times over, Jeff, to your comment about perhaps the biggest problem we have isn't just the lack of funding for services we care about. Obviously, that's a ginormous, uh, to use a technical legal term, uh, you know, it's a ginormous problem. The biggest problem is even if you had all the money in the world, what are you going to do with it? Whose hands are you going to put that money in? And do they have any clue how to meet the needs of this population that we care so much about. So Title I of Teddy Joy's law is all about trying to change that. And after months and months and months uh, of negotiation, uh, arm wrestling, fierce debate, and ultimately some, you know, drawing some consensus, and hopefully those of you who enjoy this sort of thing, like some of us do, or have been involved in coalitions and you know hopefully you're smiling back at me wryly in that 
you can appreciate how, you know, uh, people have very strong opinions about stuff and how to accomplish it. So after months of that kind of push-pull, we've settled on an overall framework in Title I of Teddy Joy's Law, and that is really about trying to um, put a focus or put a, put a, a large enough, you know, oomph <laughs> behind the whole effort of aging and vision loss in the right federal agency that perhaps with the right staffing and the right funding could do something about improving national knowledge about who this population is, how to meet our, their unique needs. So as a very practical matter, what does that mean? What are the structures we have in place on Title I? Well, we hope to establish something called an Office on Aging and Vision Loss, or OAVL. Uh, and that Office on Aging and Vision Loss will report to the highest level uh, political appointee that, frankly, Congress will allow us to have it report to at the United States Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, it's not the United States Department of Education, which is where, <clears throat> for really since its inception, the so-called older blind program has been located within uh, the Rehab Services Administration there at the Department of Ed. And there are lots of good reasons for that. Uh, we'll talk about Title II in a second, which has everything to do with the Older Blind Program. But in Title I, it was the thinking of the group that, look, um, we can have philosophical debates about medical models and social models of disability. Uh, I'm not dismissing those arguments when I say that like that. I'm just simply pointing out that you know we can have those dis discussions. We really feel as a group, and there is wide consensus about this, that since the preponderance of the money, such as it is in this country, for you know human services uh, kinds of needs, um, resides really or is under the overall umbrella of the Department of Health and Human Services or HHS. Um, does that mean that we're embracing and giving a big wet smooch to the medical model? Nope. What it does mean is that we hope to have squarely in that camp. Uh, a way for this community, our community, to infiltrate that system in a structural, even if I can dare to say it, you know, a bureaucratic way, so that there is a home that this community has built uh, in that neighborhood, in that HHS neighborhood, uh, from which then we can make certain things happen. And so you say, oh, well, fine. So there's this Office on Aging and Vision Loss. What are they going to do? Well, they're going to do a number of things. And that's what I'll try to briefly summarize right now. So you know, the first primary so structural thing is that the Office on Aging and Vision Loss will convene regularly a, a federal advisory committee, essentially, of all of the major stakeholders. And those stakeholders aren't simply folks like all of us on this call or people who may uh, in this session or others who may tune into it. It would also include federal partners, right? So there will be public and private sector folk represented in this uh, group. So of course, you know all of those blindness field alphabet soup folk who ought to be there. But then there are other federal players, including people like the United States Surgeon General, for instance, or the uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, who have been, uh, uh, they're responsible for, but have never really done as much as all of us think they should have been doing to run the numbers and better articulate sort of the health, functional health impact of vision loss uh, 
for uh, those people who are who are older and perhaps experiencing other changes in life um, as they proceed uh, on through uh, you know growing older. So there are a number of uh, uh, folks there. If you're curious about if you know, gee, your favorite federal agency or your favorite blindness group is in the list, uh, we can certainly talk about that. And uh, the statute that we're writing will list most of those by name, but of course, then make it more flexible to add other players as we can. Great. So what is this group going to do? I mean, wonderful. You're going to have three or four meetings a year with a lot of folks with, uh, you know, chest thumping or whatever. Hopefully not. Uh, The purpose of that, one of the primary purposes of that advisory committee would be to make formal recommendations, not only for what the Department of Health and Human Services can do, but what other federal agencies, including the U.S. Department of Education and RSA, can better do uh, either in terms of changing their regs, the actual official you know rules and regs that are in place, or perhaps how they can better fund or direct funding or coordinate funding across various federal agency-supported and state-implemented programs uh, that support the needs of older folks generally, and especially then to say, by the way, you're throwing good money after bad if you don't know how to best work with those older folks that you are serving in states uh, who also live with vision loss, unless you pay attention to us. So hopefully that will be one of the primary goals of that advisory committee. Okay, but we're not just creating another office of bureaucrats in HHS, and we're not just going to convene this job-owning group. We're also going to do some very specific substantive things. So Title I of Teddy Joy's Law also talks about the fact that this Office on Aging and Vision Loss will administer a program, which at the moment we're calling the Avalon Initiative. And it's just an attempt to try to find a cutesy name for Aging with Vision Loss uh, Orientation Network, right? So trying to play on the word Avalon. And what the heck does this mean? Well, this is really meant to be a program that will allow an individual client, a person who is older living with vision loss, and perhaps their family members with their own personal, you know, culturally relevant and knowledgeable navigator who can perhaps almost literally hold the hand of the person involved to say, look, not only are you not alone, but there are other ways in which the various services that are available to all folks who are older uh, could be meeting your needs more effectively. And here's how we can make that happen. And by the way, uh, client, do you know about the Older Blind Program? By the way, client, do you know anything about you, you say you want to, the thing you're frightened about the most is not being able to continue to read because you enjoy reading. Love to introduce you to some resources you might not have otherwise heard about. And by the way, here's some just general advice on how to streamline the process of applying for those uh, uh, services. So it's really about creating this network of navigators who will then uh, put together an individualized sort of coordination plan for uh, the clients. Uh, you know, this is not meant to be overly bureaucratic. You're not going to be able to take your individualized coordination plan down the street and cash it in for this or that specific service. The, really, the coordination plan is all about simply documenting making it as crystal clear for the client and family members what is available and hopefully uh, being able to then report back data that's collected as a result of the creation and uh, carrying out of those plans so that nationally we can track trends in how all the various aging networks in the states uh, 
and how they coordinate with the older blind program too. How successful we're all being with that. So, so that's a major program. What's that? Before we get away from this navigator idea, it's yes. it's interesting, isn't it, that I bet most folks in our community have never heard of navigators. And yet for those in a large portion of the advocacy community, the social services community, sure. the navigator concept is widely known and widely used. You want yeah. to talk about that for a minute and, 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 and the import of that little, little nugget? Uh, sure. So, so I, I fully expect that uh, you could answer your own question more effectively than I will, only because, you know, I'm a I'm a federal federal law policy nerd, uh, which means I have the luxury of thinking about these things in a very abstract sort of way. So my, the most familiarity, familiarity I have with the navigator concept are, are the navigators that were put together in the social security context to help you know clients navigate through connections between, okay, so what are all these crazy benefits anyway? Uh, how do you navigate the various uh, and use effectively the various work incentives and such. And particularly then when you start to get into, okay, how do we get back to work? Um, and and what is this crazy thing called the ticket to work program anyhow? And you know, there's a whole just mush of stuff. And it's particularly been uh, shown to be very helpful to not leave individual clients or beneficiaries to the tender mercies of the Social Security Act or the regs or staff who, even if they do mean well, uh, are not necessarily trained at SSA to be particularly, you know, customer service oriented, but the proverbial hay down where the goats can get it. Uh, and so I think that's really what we're trying to do here uh, with this navigator program and connect something with a real live human uh, who has a certain amount of, you know, high touch ability to work directly with an individual client and their family members to connect some dots for them in a streamlined fashion that might otherwise uh, happen. So this Avalon program is is uh, part and parcel of Title I. We also want to make sure that there is a new funding stream created for the preparation of new professionals to meet the needs of the population we care about. You know, there are uh, monies available under the Department of Education's so-called long-term training grants. RSA administers those, and you know that's the money that you that university programs would tend to go to to help support the preparation of new orientation mobility professionals, let's say, or vision rehab therapists or you know, folks like that. We're not trying to recreate the wheel here with this new budget line for personnel preparation. In fact, we need to go out of our way as we draft Teddy Joy's law to be clear that it is not, as, as the saying goes, well, this is suppl it supplements and does not supplant. Okay. Right? So we're trying to add to the mix. So who are these people that we would be trying to prepare? Well, a good chunk of the money in this personnel prep line here would be about amping up the knowledge base of allied health professionals who might not otherwise be uh, blindness expert, you know, trained. Uh, and I think a lot of us have some pretty strong feelings about how precious few folks would fall into that <laughs> definition. There's an awful lot of need out there. So essentially amping up the knowledge base of OTs, PTs, and others uh, who are expected regularly to work with an aging population who experiences vision loss and to frankly juice them up uh, with blindness-specific expertise 
such that whether they actually pursue formal certification from our community or not, certainly could be certified based on the knowledge base that they would possess. So that's the goal there. I'm going to stick a word in here uh, with respect to the shortage we have of of so many types of blindness professionals. You know, in my former career working for the state legislature in California, I used to see many um, proposed programs on different types of healthcare professionals trying to provide incentives and scholarships and you know getting people to get training they could go into underserved areas and they wouldn't have to pay any any of the money back and all these different types of things wouldn't it be great if we had a few states that in, in ACB state affiliates that tried to come up with a legislative proposal to train you know orientation and mobility specialists in their state or vision rehabilitation teachers I'm just throwing that out there as a thought you don't need to wait for Teddy Joy's laws to pass. Uh, you can do it in your own states as well. So think about that. Well, and I love that transition then because the few remaining items I haven't mentioned in Title I are about exactly that kind of stuff. So there is a, a public awareness function uh, that will be funded uh, at, at the office on this newly created office in aging and vision loss would administer as well as a a series of pilot projects, sort of grants and cooperative agreements. So, you know, eventually we want to get to a point where we can say, yes, the the OADL will help to seed exactly the kind of, you know, activities that you're talking about, whether they are ideas that can be done today, or perhaps there are new, you know, creative solutions to amping up uh, the number of professionals that are out there and the number and the, the quality of the depth of the expertise they have. So those are sort of the highlights of Title I. Um, really, Title I could really stand on its own. In other words, you could peel off Title I of Teddy Joy's law and have it, at least this is the way that yours truly is in, trying uh, to, to draft this thing. So it could really stand on its own. But the whole point of Teddy Joy's law, at least if broadly speaking, is to go to Congress, establish or you know build on existing champions that we have in Congress to say, no, we need a comprehensive package of changes. And for sure, we want the things, these new things in Title I, but there are other things that we need to do. And so what are those other things? Well, that's when you come to Title II. And Title II of Teddy Joy's Law is all about the Older Blind Program. The formal long name for that program is the Independent Living Services for Older Individuals Who Are Blind Program. And those initials don't spell out anything, so don't try to hurt yourself by trying to guess what that acronym could be. It's a very descriptive name, not exactly the most memorable name in the world. It's primarily why I think we try to shorten it, just call it the Older Blind Program or the OIB Program. And this is a, as I think everybody should know, uh, administered, you know, it's a federally supported state-run program for providing independent living services to 55 years of age and older. Folk uh, who live with some kind of degree of vision loss uh, and uh, uh, that is administered or uh, carried out by state agencies, state folk rehab agencies, and especially those state folk rehab agencies that are dedicated for blind and visually impaired people. For sure, they are a hardcore part of the you know the the core function of this program, how it gets out there. So this program has been on the books for decades. 
the funding right now, I think, is, oh gosh, 35.x million, somewhere in there. It's It's been at that level, roughly speaking, for many, many years. Uh, I'm not working for the AFB anymore, so I can brag on my employer without blushing by saying, you know, I think we all can t- tip our hats to AFB for in the early, the late 90s, early 2000s, really leading the field along with the National Council and State Agencies for the Blind and others, for sure. As always, ACB was a full partner in that effort uh, to really bump up the federal appropriations, the annual spending that Congress makes available for that program. But I mean, it is it has been woefully underfunded and even at 30 some point X million is just pitiful uh, in comparison to the, the need. In very rough terms, I think some people have suggested that because the funding is as low as it is, maybe only 3% or less of the people who should qualify based on the qualifications that you need to have, uh, the eligibility requirements that you need to have to participate, only about you know maybe 3% of all folks in the country right now are actually getting services through that program, uh, which is just unconscionable. So the biggest deal in Title II of Teddy Joy's law is all about saying, um, you know, nobody has a real good scientific sense of exactly what full funding for the older blind program would be. And quite candidly, the extent to which some of us have tried to get at that, right? If you say, okay, fine, here's a blank check, write the amount you want every year, but it, you know, this has to justify or serve all the people that you think need to be served. The, the truth is that would be easily a billion dollars or more if you really wanted to talk about all the services that the entire population of 12.x million, and that's the numbers that the, you know, the ultra smart, which doesn't include me, researchers in the field say is the size of the population we're talking about, 12 point, at least, at least 12.x million people. Um, if you're talking about that number of folks and trying to meet all their various needs, because of their the fact that they're growing older and they're living with vision loss, and you're going to expect the older blind program to meet all those needs, I mean that number is easily for full funding is easily going to be with a capital B in the billions somewhere. That ain't going to happen in anyone's lifetime who's listening to this conversation right now. So we need to start somewhere, and so Title II of Teddy Joy's Law sets a new threshold of at least fifty million dollars per jurisdiction. I'd, if, if only $50 million across the board for all jurisdictions. And then various jurisdictions would get money on top of that, right? So based on the size of their states, so there'd be a threshold level above which then there would be monies made available. And, uh, and those monies would not, would then be increased every year automatically based on cost of living, um, and other related factors. And the funding would be mandatory and not discretionary, which is a little kind of a nerdy distinction there, but. Because the funding right now is discretionary, you know, if the Congress can't function properly, and gee whiz, they seem to fit that bill often, uh, and they fail to enact annual appropriations bills, uh, we won't be caught up in that failure, that the increases would be automatic, and the monies would be considered mandatory and not discretionary. So you say, well, okay, that sounds like a lot of mumbo jumbo. You're saying that there's, we need tons more money. We might even need a billion dollars if we were really going to have this program be all that it could be. And now you're talking about 50 million, perhaps a little more uh, for all jurisdictions. Why bother? And I mean, I get the frustration. Lord knows for months and months, we've had frustrating conversations about this. 
But part of what we're trying to do with this sort of reset, if you will, on the funding where Teddy Joy's law is concerned and the, its impact on the Elder Blind program is to say it for sure needs a substantial increase over what it is now. We know that it, the fund, the, the, there will never be monies available to fully fund all of the needs that our people need through the Older Blind program, but we need to start and those increases need to happen regularly and predictably. And so that's what we're going to do. One of the other things that we're trying to do to maximize the amount of money that is available, however much Congress makes available, is to focus the activity of the older blind programs across the country. So if you were to look at a list of all of the services that are available uh, to people in the older blind program, uh, there's even money specifically mentioned in the OIB statute for surgical procedures. Uh, for assistive technology, for information and referral services. So, I mean, any number of these things, of course, they all sound like motherhood and apple pie, except that certainly in the case of surgical procedures, gee, is that really an appropriate thing for a program like the OIB program to be funding? And in the case of assistive technology, shouldn't there be perhaps another way that we can maximize the funds that are available to the older blind program on services and not necessarily on technology, since we know that technology can often be quite uh, expensive. So this is why Teddy Joy's law is also proposing the creation of a new technology uh, delivery program, uh, not unlike the program that was created by the Communications Video Accessibility Act or the CBAA for low-income deafblind folk uh, to receive tele accessible telecommunications equipment. So Teddy Joy's law would say, okay, we will set up a new technology uh, distribution program that the Office on Aging and Vision Loss at HHS would administer uh, for low-income folk. And what would that be? Probably something like 400% of the federal poverty line, uh, which is essentially what the older the deafblind equipment program has. And we say, okay, so long as clients qualify for that program and can receive low vision devices and other tech through that program, you know, the expectation will be that that client receives those technologies through that program first. And that the only way in which an older blind program would be able to make expensive assistive tech available through older blind funds would be to expect that the client first has to essentially be denied services or because they don't qualify for this new tech program because of the amount of income that they have. So it's a way to say, you know, will the OIB program continue to provide assistive tech when needed? You betcha. But we also recognize that funds in the older blind area are significantly limited. And so this is a way to try to open up a new funding stream for technology, which perhaps itself can grow over time, independent of the older blind program, but nevertheless help the older blind program make most of the monies that it has. Uh, before I mention very briefly, Jeff, titles three and four, which really won't take that much time, I'll pause if you had any questions or wanted to quiz me about any of that. Uh, no, go right ahead. Great, so the last two titles then, I don't wanna say they're miscellaneous. Uh, if you were to see the notes I have in my computer about them or look at the outline that we've distributed to some of our friends in this aging and vision loss national coalition, 
that ACB and AER and a bunch of other groups are actively involved in. You know, it might seem miscellaneous to you, uh, but I hope that when the world gets to see the final sort of draft of Teddy Joy's law, that it doesn't look miscellaneous because I believe these provisions are pretty important. So Title Three of Teddy Joy's law essentially is a set of amendments to the Older Americans Act. Because if you're going to talk about providing or increasing and improving services to our community, for sure, the Older Americans Act needs to be uh, amped up. For some reason, I'm really hung up on the phrase amped up today. Um, maybe it's because I want to be more amped up and on caffeine. So perhaps I'll tend to that while I talk to you. But, uh, you know, can the Older Americans Act be perform better for us, quote unquote? You bet. Uh, what is the likelihood that the Older Americans Act or the programs that are supported through Older Americans Act funding will be, you know, 100 uh, percent, you know, made relevant to our community? Uh, probably the odds are stacked a bit against that. But we have an obligation, it seems to me, to try to ensure that, at least from the federal or national perspective, that the Older Americans Act set of programs and the aging networks that are funded through the OAA are, are better attuned to us. So there'll be some conforming amendments there, right? So anytime where there are special populations called out in the Older Americans Act for attention, I think here about, you know, there are any number of places in the Older Americans Act where uh, folks uh, experiencing Alzheimer's, uh, there are, you know, specific, you know, let's make a priority of these people. And what are your plans, state, to serve their needs. You know, if, if we're doing that for certain specific populations like that, why not do it for a discrete, albeit sizable, but discrete population like ours uh, in there? So that's some of the amendments we want to do. But perhaps the most substantive thing uh, that we want to do in Title Three of Teddy Joy's Law is to say that all of the various instruments right, that are used as part of the, you know, let's get to know you, client. Who are you? And you know, clients are answering all these questions about who they are in order to get services or et cetera, is to ask the question, uh, you know, uh, which appears on a lot of the main surveys, right, that are used, the American Community Survey, which is part of the census or it's built off of the census uh, or other instruments. And the question that's often asked is, are you blind or do you have trouble seeing even with eyeglasses or contacts? So trying to build that sort of question into as many assessment tools or, uh, you know, intake uh, processes as possible. And then not just to ask the question, have nothing happened with it and just collect a bunch of paperwork, but hopefully the, you know, answering yes to that question sets certain bureaucratic wheels in motion, which then make it more likely that uh, that person would then be connected with the services and such uh, that are best suited to meet their needs, and especially to be connected to the Navigator uh, program, uh, for sure. So all these things kind of, you know, are all interrelated, as you can see. So there's, that's basically Title III in a very rough sketch. So then Title IV, um, I don't want to say this is controversial. I would say that it is um, still up for debate, uh, in a way. Title IV of Teddy Joy's law, which may or may not stay in, uh, is all about Medicare reimbursement, not for technology, um, because I think ACB has been leading the way um, for sure on trying to crack that nut, 
but uh, this is about Medicare reimbursement for the services that our certified professionals provide. This is an issue that's been around, like so many of our issues, for decades. There was a concerted effort in the blindness system, you know, 20 years ago to make progress on this and to essentially amend the Medicare statute and regs to make sure that our certified people would be able to have their services paid for out of Medicare to one degree or another. And we don't have time to go into all the machinations for why that didn't occur. The only thing that really did come of that effort from 20 years ago was a demonstration project was established that was pitifully uh, orchestrated by the Medicare administering agency, CMS. And, uh, you know, when you tell bureaucrats, thou shalt do a national demonstration project in this area, but we won't gonna, we're not going to give you any money, additional money for it. And we're not going to tell you how to do it. And we're not going to tell you how to evaluate the outcomes. Well, you can imagine uh, when those cats are away, how the mice play. And so the, the, the results of that demonstration project were almost useless. So here we are again, right? We're now at a point where we're putting this hopefully comprehensive bill uh, together, <clears throat> which may or may not ultimately get broken up into various constituent parts. And the question becomes, do we want to try yet again to improve services for our population by trying to support uh, you know, funding, finding a new funding stream for the services our professionals provide? Because presumably, right, it isn't just about enriching certified professionals. In fact, quite frankly, they would probably be the least, least to benefit from these provisions that I'm talking about now, Medicare reimbursement. If anyone's going to be making money off of it, it will be the qualified Medicare, you know, billers who are, you know, institutions, private nonprofits, et cetera. Uh, but hopefully what, you know, the idea here is not only that more services will get provided because there'll be more money to make them available, but that long term, the fact that money, more money is in that pipeline will mean that more professionals will be drawn into these professions, that the universities will have more uh, folks to recruit for their programs, and that generationally, it will significantly improve the overall number of professionals we have. So when I say it's debatable, it's because I think there are any number of folks who've said, number one, I don't know that I'm particularly keen on the idea of Medicare paying for our stuff because maybe I'm not completely sold on that idea. I don't share that perspective, but I've you know, heard it plenty. There are others who would say, you know what, uh, sounds like a very cool idea, nice ivory tower idea. If you think that the blindness system, particularly the private agencies for the blind across the country, many of whom are really, you know, they're small nonprofits trying to hang on. If you think that they have the capacity to become qualified Medicare billers, uh, then you're crazy because it, that is just, that is an enormous heavy rock to push up a very steep hill. And so perhaps, uh, you know, it's a lovely idea in principle, but let's not spend a lot of our political or whatever energy to try to move that as well. So for sure, we're going to be doing those first three titles, a new office on aging and vision loss at HHS with all those related program activities, uh, improvements to the older blind program that will make sure that there's more money for that program, but also make sure that the older blind program is connected up with all the rest of the aging programs in the country. They will be, for example, our RSA will be required to participate in that advisory committee that I talked about early on. So there's going to be that kind of formal linking across fertilization. And then the third piece on making sure uh, that the Older Americans Act uh, is brought at least a bit more up to speed where our community is concerned. So with that, Jeff, 
Hopefully I've not bored us all to tears, but that's what we're looking at in Teddy Joy's law. Okay, great. So I'm going to take five minutes before we open it up for questions to talk about a passion of mine in this area and something that um, will probably be partially covered in Teddy's Joy's Law, but which is something that really you out there in the uh, in, in the grassroots land all over this country can work on right now. And that is the federal Medicaid program. The federal Medicaid program is um, funded partly by the federal government and partly by the states. And there are certain federal requirements that the states must meet, but most of it is very discretionary toward each state, and each state designs its own program. And part of that program, if the state wants to do it, and most states do, is providing home and community-based services. Because of the American Rescue Plan that was recently enacted, just about every state has a lot of money to provide home and community-based services. Almost no states, just a smattering of states, have blindness services under those programs as part of their Medicaid program. I encourage you, and we're going to be discussing this more at the convention, and I may just decide to hold a couple community calls prior to the convention because I think we don't want to wait around until this money gets allocated. Um, I encourage you at the state level to find out about your Medicaid program, how it works, and see if you can begin to advocate for um, services like the teaching of Braille, like technology training, like orientation and mobility to be included in your state's program. Um, One way to do it, um, where it doesn't necessarily require some change in your law, is to go to uh, some of the managed care plans that are increasingly becoming a greater and greater part of the landscape in terms of how services are provided to low-income people. You go to your anthems, your you know Blue Crosses, your Kaisers, and you say, hey, you know, whether it's part of your Medicaid program or just part of your general private pay program, have you ever thought about um, contracting with private agencies or with commissions or whomever to have these services provided to your blindness uh, clients because you know you may just keep some of them out of an institution and it's a lot cheaper to pay you know a thousand dollars for you know a few hours of mobility or a few hours of figuring out how to you know deal with your medicine bottles than it is to have them in a nursing facility for even a few days so that's something to think about. I'm not going to take any more time on that now because this isn't the central piece of what we're doing. But I, I really want to, you know, make this something that you really think about because the money is there. We're just not getting much of the piece of that particular pie. In fact, we're getting probably just a crumb of that particular pie. <laughs> so with that... Um, Allison, who I want to thank for being our host today, as well as Britain, our captioner. Allison, do we have any questions? Uh, at the moment, we have no raised hands, but while we're waiting on those, if I may, Jeff and Mark, I would like to go ahead and remind everybody how to uh, raise hands uh, and mute or unmute. Thank you. Okay, uh, if you're on a PC and you'd like to raise your hand, 
You will do that by pressing Alt-Y if you're on a Mac. It's Option-Y. If you're on the app, the raised hand button is located in the bottom, in the at the bottom of your screen in the very center. And if you're on a standard telephone, you will raise your hand with star nine. To mute or unmute, once I allow you to talk, you may do this by pressing Alt-A on the PC. If you're on a Mac, it's Command-Shift-A. If you're on the app, the mute, unmute button is a toggle located in the lower left-hand corner of your screen. And if you're on a standard telephone, you'll mute or unmute with star six. And be sure and press the got it button for the recording if you haven't done so already, so you will be able to do those commands. And I'm not seeing any raised hands at the moment. Okay, so Mark, let me ask you this question, and maybe some people out there have even thought of it already. Yeah. Um, and it's a question you know the answer to, but it's not an easy <laughs> question. It's not an easy answer to give. <laughs> some people may wonder why you haven't talked any about what's obviously one of the most important issues for all of us who are blind or have low vision, and that's transportation. Why don't you go into that a little bit? Sure. Thanks for the uh, hot potato there. <laughs> so, so I mean, uh, right. I mean, it, 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 would, it certainly appears on its face like, gee whiz, you guys have been talking and talking and talking, and in classic fashion, maybe uh, you've talked yourselves around everything but you know, the, one of the elephants in the room. I want to try to assure the audience that uh, we've talked about it a lot, um, and I, I don't require people to agree with this, but I do think that it is fair to say that after looking at the issue of transportation uh, in various uh, ways, however you might define it, we've talked about it, paratransit, local sort of pilot projects, um, you, you name it, uh, potential federal funding, et cetera. There is no blindness-specific federal legislative solution around which the various players, including, if I may dare say so, Jeff, uh, the ACB-related reps uh, in the room uh, that folks could identify. I mean, that's not to say that there aren't federal legislative changes or federal legislative, you know, spending, you know, funding increases that couldn't be done for all populations. But when we really started to drill down into, okay, who... What population are we defending? Who are we representing? Who are we? Who are we? <laughs> it's older folks living with vision loss. What are their transportation needs that are specific to that population that our friends in the cross-disability world wouldn't also say, yeah, us too? And, uh, you know, luckily we have people in our community uh, who are also actively engaged and play a leadership role in the cross-disability community. I know that there are some certainly big names. I mean, you know, Jeff, you and I often compliment in his absence Ron Brooks, but I'm thinking now about the public policy professionals in blindness, our friends at the American Foundation for the Blind, and a colleague whose name I don't mind dropping here. Her name is Sarah, Sarah Malaire, who is as soft-spoken as she is brilliant, uh, and who, along with our once upon a time very own Claire Stanley, who now works for another group, uh, are among the co-chairs of the major 
you know, disability, uh, you know, the uh, Consortium for Citizens with Disabilities or CCD policy coalition and based in Washington, uh, you know, they co-chair the transportation task force. And so good grief, uh, the blindness community is about as well positioned in the cross disability space to try to impact and affect transportation policy and funding uh, for all folks, including us. Now I know ACB fairly well, uh, and sometimes depending on my mood, I share uh, the following perspective, which is, what in the heck are you talking about? What do you mean there isn't a specific thing that we need that other people don't need? And they'll get into, you know, what about the fact that we need to be able to travel independently and, you know, our connection, how to linking up the need for orientation mobility services with an effective transportation uh, solution or set of solutions? Don't those go hand in hand? And doesn't that mean that we have needs that other populations don't? And the answer to that obviously is yes, we do have those needs. The question is, how would we, for example, tend to the need for orientation mobility services that link up with transportation solutions? Well, we have the older blind program, we have state folk rehab, we have, there's any number of things that we already have in place. So if somebody said to you, whoever you are, here's a pen or a refreshable braille display, a note taker, or a slate and stylus or whatever, pick your gizmo of choice. And you, you have a blank screen and you can write anything you want on transportation that relates just to blindness and vision impairment and, and for sure cannot apply to other populations uh, of people with disabilities who are older, you're going to have a devil of a time doing it. And, and to the extent to which you do come up with such solutions that look like they are blindness specific, the group, uh, for better or worse, our coalition, has come to the conclusion that whatever that is that you would come up with, are, those needs are probably best tended to through other structures, either the older blind program or perhaps some new things that we need to create that are apart from the jurisdiction of the U.S. Department of Transportation. So I'm not sure if this is a very satisfying answer to everybody or even to anybody, uh, but I will tell you that it has been certainly a struggle. And I think where we're at now is moving more from a federal sort of federal top down legislative approach to much more of a, you know, let's embrace with our colleagues across the disability community uh, you know, the need for significant increases in funding for transportation, meeting our needs across the board, but then refocus our efforts at the state and local levels. And uh, I'm not prepared to talk about all of this at the moment, but certainly our coalition is moving toward doing some webinar trainings uh, that engage folk at the state and local level. And I think anyone on in, in the list tuning into this session now who has been irritated by anything I've just said or cares about transportation generally, you know, we'd love to see you participate in those uh, conversations, not because we think we have all this stuff to train you, but because I think there needs to be a lot of cross-fertilization of knowledge about who's doing what successfully at the local level and state levels uh, to improve transportation for our people. I'm going to throw out a specific example that I have not tried to work on in my state, but I know should be worked on in many yeah. states. And yeah. that is that, you know, there is lots of money out there for people with developmental disabilities. And one of the things that in many yeah. states they have money for is travel training. Now we know that travel training does not work for a person who is blind or have low vision. We, whether they have developmental disabilities or not, they need orientation and mobility. 
Right. However, if we were to take some time, and this has to be done primarily at a state level, if we were to take some time to work with the state developmental disabilities councils, and every state has one as far as I'm mm-hmm. aware, to work on all their, you know, uh, regional center and, and other whatever they call them in your state, um, you know, programs, if we could persuade those folks to support us in our efforts to get those individuals who have developmental disabilities but who also have vision loss to get funded at a level where they could get receive orientation mobility training that would be a win-win situation for them for their community and for our community so that's just one example where if we were, were to work together we might improve the lot for at least a segment of our community. And it's not a small segment either, as, as I think all of you know. There's our, there are thousands and thousands of you know, folks with vision loss who are also in the intellectual and developmental disability community. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And that, 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 that is true for any number of contexts. I mean, there are some folks who, at a, an, an AER conference years ago, did a presentation on how in various uh, states, oh gosh, I mean, states, I don't mean to pick on them. If, if Montana is one of, you know, your favorite state in the union, I don't mean to be little Montanans, but it just seems a little remote to me. Uh, but how Montana, I guess, folks in Montana specifically work together to try to get more orientation mobility services paid for out of Medicaid dollars. And, you know, it's heavy slogging, right? And there are a few other states where this is the case. But, you know, you get a little bit of training on who the heck is it in the state you need to direct your little energies to, who are the partners you might say, you know, who, who already have a piece of that pie, Jeff, that you were talking about. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you say, well, gee, we'd like to work with you. And, you know, we'd like to like to get a fork, just like you've got one. We want a piece. In uh, fact, sometimes it's easier in a small state because it's easier to make the connections than it is in That's a big right. state. I think that's a really good point. And maybe all joking aside, that probably is an interesting advance. So maybe we always think about, you know, the big states, California at the top of that list for sure, but certainly others, we can all name our favorite big state. But, uh, you know, we think of those states, oh, let's go there and we can make that a uh, a test case or, you know, a, 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 make that a model for the country. It might make a lot more sense for us to think about who we have in various smaller jurisdictions. Um, and uh, show how things work, and most importantly, how even in that small state, uh, just because we were added to the mix, it doesn't break the bank, and that folks' are, you know, lives are actually improving. I think that'd be really neat to try. Gentlemen, we have a raised hand now. Great. Okay, uh, Livy, you can unmute. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Hey, Livy, how are you? Great. Great. Hey, Jeff. Um, one of my we're fellow cohorts from Fresno, California. Um, I have a question on the dis, developmental disabilities uh, aspect of this whole discussion. Um, and we know for a fact, and Jeff, you probably can agree with me on this, and Mark as well, that there are differing degrees of developmental disability. In other words, some people will have more intellectual or cognitive issues than others that's true and how how do we go about delineating those particular issues and dealing with that either as a group 
or do we have to which I would think you would have to do it on an individual basis. Well, that's done at the level of the educational system or the okay. regional center system. Or We don't have to worry about saying that it would apply to every individual or not. That, that's, that's a high, you know, we're just doing it at the high level in terms of a general doctrine that, that you know, folks who are going to travel independently and have a dual disability that includes vision loss need more specific training right right okay because of the vision loss okay got it thanks absolutely okay we have another raised hand and we have about six minutes so mona Uh, yes Uh, i will try to be real quick i'm from southern oregon and we have only one agency in this area that can provide training uh, for any of the sight loss disability things, or O&E, um, trans- how to get transportation, anything. Uh, that agency has one person that covers the entire lower part of the state, simply because they don't have the funding to hire more people. How do we go about starting to get funding to the Commission for the Blind in specific areas. Yeah, so great. So Title II of the Teddy Joy's Law talks about, I don't know off the top of my head if Oregon is one of these so-called, uh, oh gosh, minimum allotment states. I, for some reason, I don't think intuitively that it would be, but who the heck knows? You, you have to check the number. Out of 50 plus jurisdictions, I think there are 17 states uh, and locations, right, Ter- uh, whatever we call them these days, territories, um, that uh, are minim- minimum allotment, which means the number of humans in the state is low in comparison to the rest of the country. And so these are states that get at least some minimum threshold. But that minimum threshold is ridiculous. It's like $250,000 or something like two twenty-five. dollars I mean, it's, it's, it's just not even when you're talking management of a state program. I almost, it's like a waste of breath to even describe it. So, right. So how do you amp that up? Well, Teddy George law would say, whatever is the case specifically with Oregon, whether I'm right or wrong about it being a minimum allotment state, that threshold level, the minimum threshold level would go up substantially. And then on top of that, then a state gets a minimum of at least a million dollars, you know, above and beyond that. And then there would certainly be other opportunities for that state to partner in new ways through the pilot projects that we're creating under this Title I of Teddy Joy's law. So that's a lot of you know, mumbling to say, how do you get more money to an individual state? Uh, you do your best by trying to set minimum thresholds and try to regularly increase those dollars without Congress you know, having to beg Congress every year to do it. And then over the course of time, hopefully that money builds. But the other thing, and this has been a point of... <sighs> Well, everything is a debate, it seems like, in our community. But for sure, there were a few months there when yours truly wasn't very popular. Uh, and there were a few others who were joining me in this effort. I wasn't completely standing alone at this. But you know, essentially trying to say, look, I love the Older Blind program. I think it's a really essential program. Don't ever say that Mark Riker doesn't support it 100% because that'd be a lie. And there is no way in the world, no matter how much money you try to throw at that program, that it ever will, based on just structurally and other things, be able to meet all the needs that need to be met, which is why that older blind program needs to be supplemented with other programs that may on their face not look like blindness specific programs, but in which we frankly can, you know, we can be infiltrate those structures 
and open up some new channels of money to them so that we're not constantly going back to Congress and saying, put increasing you know, tens of millions of dollars into this one tiny little frayed basket. Because the reality of it is the older blind program will never be able to uh, handle all of the need, uh, no matter how much money we throw at it. Just structurally and other things, it makes it very, very difficult. And I just think as a matter of good public policy, it makes sense not to have all the eggs in one basket, so to speak, because you need to have multiple options. The key there, of course, is to make sure that those all those multiple options are competent in providing services to us and that they all coordinate to one degree or another. So those are those kinds of overall policy objectives we're trying to address in Teddy Joy's law. So, Mona, I'm going to take 30 seconds and give you my more immediate <laughs> answer. <laughs> yes. Medicaid. That's who, where you want to go. It, not everybody is eligible for Medicaid, as we know, because it's a program for low-income folks. But that's where the money is. And there's no reason that blindness services can't glom on to some of it. But it takes advocacy, and you got to work with either your legislature or your Department of Health or whoever administers it. Oregon has a robust Medicaid program. I do happen to know that. Uh, and, and that's where the money is. So if you want to do something, that's your advocacy work. Okay, thank you. I think we've run out of time. Wow, time flies. And there are no more raised hands. Well, thank you, Mark, for giving us all that important information. We have a lot of work to do over the course of time on (laughs) services for older adults with vision loss. But, uh, you know, we're farther along the road than I think we've ever been, at least in many, many years. So hopefully better things to come. Yes, sir. And I can't tell you how proud I am to be doing this in partnership with ACB, which, of course, I've been a part of for many, many years. But to be able to name something like this after Teddy Joy, I mean, you certainly knew her a lot more than I did. uh, But what a fierce, amazing champion. And I can't think of a more worthy um, person to be a namesake for our efforts. So pleased to be a part of it. All right. Thanks, everyone, for coming and listening.